0: My best friend's in a gun rack.
1: up motherfuckers, welcome to another episode of the Low Life Motherfucking Chopper Podcast. We got a hell of an episode for you guys this week, a little bit of an unusual episode because as you can probably tell from the intro, I'm running solo on tonight's episode. We had a little bit of a scheduling conflict and had a guest in line, but the guest wasn't able to join us, will still be joining us on a future episode, but I figured this was the perfect time to do what I'm always wanting to do, but not wanting to drown out the person we're talking to. Tonight is going to be an all-in-depth guide to getting started with TIG Weldon. By the end of the episode, you're going to know what model you want to buy, what features are important to you what accessories you're going to need to get started, because it's all about those TIG and TIG accessories. You're going to know what filler rod you need and some good projects to start out with. So before we get into all of that good stuff and a whole bunch more, let's kick this thing off the way we always do with these motherfucking sponsors. First up, we got ChopCult, Lisa, holding it down over there for the longest time. This is the Chopper Hub, so make sure you swing on over there. Make yourself an account. Make yourself a build thread. Add yourself to the Brolodex. Scroll through the blog. Take advantage of their free classifieds. And get rid of all those parts that are cluttering the fuck out of your garage. Next up, we've got Chicken Fry Choppers. A.K.A. Chicken Rick, who is the man behind ChopShit.com. Hand-picked parts from builders across the world. This guy's got everything you can need and more. He's also the home of all the low-life merch, as well as the stickers, pins, patches, hoodies, and chopper goodies. You didn't think we'd forget to say it, did you? He's got it all. Swing on over to ChopShit.com and scoop yourself some quality stuff. Next up, we got Broadway Customs. This is the brainchild of Keebler Customs and Lucky Horseshoe Customs, who are out there in Colorado doing some of the dopest fabrication work commercial, automotive, CNC plasma cutting, 3D printing, and a whole lot more. Make sure you're following Broadway Customs on Instagram. Next up, we got Lowbrow Customs everything you need for the road ahead since 2004. Tyler is a great dude, did an episode with us a few years back, talked about the history of Lowbrow. Go back, check it out, and the next time you need some parts, especially, a little highlight here, the fabrication parts they have. their bung kits, all the mounting tabs, key switch tabs, great stuff to have on hand so that when you're six beers deep and you want to weld your key switch onto your bike, you're not trying to do it by hand with a grinder and making a piece of shit one. Just get a good one from lowbrowcustoms.com. Next up, we got Paco, 52 years in the game, slanging those transmission components. We get right down to it right in the beginning. But they also have frames, front ends, handlebars, exhausts, and a whole lot more. Make sure you are following Paco Parts, all one word, like gentlemen, on Instagram. And check out Paco.com and they will get you squared away. Next up, we've got the homie Wes at Custom Destruction making some of the dopest lids that you're ever going to set your eyes on. Pretty much everybody you know already has one, and there are a million options so that you don't have to end up looking just like the guy next to you. Wes does all custom orders. You pick the shell color, the trim package and the interior liner color. He does it all. These are, as you have heard on this podcast, the only helmets that make the ugliest motherfucker look sexy. We made it. We made it through all of the sponsors. So, with that out of the way, let's go ahead and jump into these motherfucking shoutouts. First up, we've got a very important one, which is, unfortunately... Some sad news, uh, this is from John Atkins, uh, a.k.a. Dead Nut on Instagram. One of his buddies, Timbo, or Tim, uh, Instagram handle is Timbo Slice, uh, he says was involved in a very serious head-on motorcycle accident on his way home from Grundle Run and is currently in the ICU. So, there's a link to the GoFundMe that he sent over, um, Super sad situation. It could honestly happen to any of us. So, when you're hearing this, I hope you treat it that way. Swing on over there, give what you can, and help a good dude get back on his feet. All right, next up we have Michael White, aka Death Day Mike, with no underscores. I love it. Uh, he sent in a question, which we're going to get to at the end. We'll be doing some listener Q and a, you guys wrote in a bunch of questions. I'm super stoked with the response on it. Um, but me and Mike went back and forth a whole bunch on some specific stuff on welding aluminum, dialing things in. And I hope it's working out for you, man. We already kind of gave him his answers a little bit early, so hopefully he's smooth sailing, but, um, just wanted to throw that out there to remind you guys, too, if you hear anything in this episode that you feel like you still don't understand or you try it and it's different when you seem to get into your shop, feel free to shoot me a message. Uh, my handle's is Fabrication. It's F-E-R-R-O Fabrication. All one word. Uh, shoot me a message and we can get you squared away. One more shout out slash kick in the dick. This actually, I almost forgot to mention this. I'm glad I, this popped into my head here. Last week, we had a weird issue with a couple people thinking that the episode wasn't up because for some reason, it never uploaded to Spotify. So if you listen to this on Spotify, keep an eye out and let me know as we go forward if you're not seeing this each week. I don't know if this is because we got fucking reported on Spotify or if you... I don't even know what what it would cause, what would cause them to just say we're not going to upload it anymore. We don't upload it to each player individually. You just hit one button and it goes out to all of them. But last week, Spotify didn't pick it up. So hopefully that's not a sign of things to come and it was just some random glitch, but it might be time to say adios to Spotify and start listening on a different player if that's going to be the case. All right. So with all that good stuff out of the way, we are ready to jump in. This is an episode I'm super excited about. A lot of people write to me and they say, Hey, you know, I'm interested in getting started in TIG welding and I just don't even know where to begin. What is the machine you would recommend? What stuff do I need? All of this. I did a bunch of blog posts on the topic probably over a year ago at this point um, at my ferrofabrication.com website and Those blog posts were super well received, but it's been a long time since I've updated the blog. Things get crazy, and I don't think people are seeing them as much. So what I'm looking to do with this episode is let this be a living document that you can just point somebody to, or you can come back to yourself and say, let me listen again now that I've gotten through the beginning stages, and maybe I can pick up some of the extra tips that I didn't understand the first time around. So that's the goal here. We're going to get into the idea is that this is going to get you into TIG welding and and each segment, because I've got it broken down into a couple sections here at each section, we'll go into a couple more things and a little more detail for the people who are already TIG welding and looking to improve, but we're not going to get too, too deep onto any one subject because there's a lot to cover. And then I still want to have time at the end to take all of your questions. So, with that being said, we're going to go through it like this. We're going to talk about machines, then we're going to talk about features, we're going to talk about all the accessories you need, what filler rods to have on hand, and then getting started and actually setting the machine up for the first time. So, with no further ado, let's start out with the machines. Here's how I'm going to do this. Because there are so many out there, let's start with the first thing that people tend to ask about, which is, should I get a a dedicated TIG welder or should I get a multi-process machine? So a multi-process machine is basically something that does multiple different types of welding. So this could be like a MIG TIG stick. One thing people should know, too, when you're talking about a TIG welder is that every TIG welder is also a stick welder. A lot of people don't know this, uh, and and this is part of the reason they're like, oh, well, what if it's too dirty to TIG weld and I only have a TIG welder? Well, your TIG welder will always stick weld, and most of the time, they actually come with a stick stinger, too. So if you had something that was, like, rusty and disgusting and you want to just sling some 7018 stick rod over it, you can do that with a dedicated TIG welder. So I always I always want to mention that because it's not super well-known outside of the welding community that that's something that you can do with your TIG welder. So if that's your reasoning for wanting a multi-process machine, just understand you do kind of have some extra capability just with having a TIG welder. Uh, but then the multi-process machines... This is kind of, it's hotly debated, (laughs) to say the least. I'm going to try not to put too much of my own personal feelings into this and just try to break it down for you. Um, The multi-process machines do a lot of different things pretty well. I'll I'll say it that way. It's kind of like when you go to the store and you see in Walmart and you see like the survival knife and it's like, it's a knife and it's a bottle opener. And if you open up the handle, it's got like a fire starter in there and it's got like paracord wrapped around the handle. And it's like, really, you might just want to buy a knife and then buy some of that other stuff separately instead of getting a whole bunch of features that kind of work, but not as good. So, there's me putting my own little spin <laughs> on the If You can tell I don't own any multi-process machines. Um, the way that they work, though, is instead of setting up a panel, you know, like just twisting the knobs on the front like you would with a TIG welder, you've got this like little iPad in the front. And this little iPad has like a touchscreen on it. And you instead of, you know, twisting each setting, it kind of walks you through it. Like say you would click on, OK, I want to weld steel, and you go, boop, you click on steel, and then it's, boop, one-eighth inch, and you're like, okay, I'm going to weld it on alternating current, and it goes, nope, that's direct current. You said you're welding steel. On uh, steel, you need direct current. You go, oh, I, no, I know, I know, I know. I just hit the wrong button. I, I, I know what it is. The point being, <laughs> it's helpful sometimes for these machines because they will walk you through all the steps if you don't know what you're doing yet. But the downside is if you ever end up in front of a machine that isn't that machine, you might have you might be missing some of the fundamentals of how to get a machine set up, where you plug things in, what each setting does because the way these things kind of cater to someone that's just pushing a button in the front of them can kind of paper over some of what you need to know. So, as far as single versus multi-process, I did I'm I'm going to do a quick recap of the top five machines I would recommend. And even though if you can't tell by this intro that I'm not a huge fan of multi-process machines, I did want to be fair. So I put what I think is the best multi-process, the best reasonably priced multi-process machine that I'm seeing everywhere in the community um, is on this list. So I did include it if you're dead set on going multi process Uh, But I do have to say my recommendation would be to get a TIG, get a dedicated TIG welder that can also do stick and then get a lower cost MIG welder for things that you can't TIG or stick because you'll just have a little more functionality. And additionally, a TIG welder is a lot smaller than a multi-process. Some of these multi-process machines are huge and heavy. And once you get your TIG welder, believe me, people will ask you, hey, can you weld this for me? Can you, uh, can you just bring that machine over and we'll, we'll just weld something up real quick? You're not going to want to stuff that gigantic machine in the back of your car or even in your truck. They're just a pain in the ass to move around. But if you're only welding at home and it's something that you feel like doing, that's A-OK. So it will be here in the list. So let's get into it. I got five different welders here that I wanted to throw out as recommendations because they're things that I've either seen or I know someone personally who has used them. I've got one from AHP. It's one that I own. It's the machine that I started Ferro Fabrication with. One from Everlast, one from Miller, one from Lincoln, and one from ESAB. That's the big five. There are others. I'm going to put this out here right now because as soon as you say there's five, somebody goes, but Greece, what about this random brand that I saw on the 18th page of Amazon? I can't speak to every welder and I'm not going to pretend to. So I will say if you found some random machine that isn't on this list, there's a reason that it's not on the list. Um, Unless you're talking about Fronius, which is another company, it's a European company. I don't recommend it. They're great welders. Maybe not for your first welder, though. The problem is they use European-style consumables. You're not going to be able to get them at a local store. Um, So if you need something same day, you're just going to be shit out of luck. They're great welders down the road. If you want to look at Fronius, go ahead and look at Fronius. But for the time being, if you're listening to this, oh, you know what? I guess we have people in different countries. So if you're in the U.S., I would write them off for right now. Not because they're not good machines, but just because you just need to give it a little little more time before those things are available here in the States. If you're overseas, absolutely. Give Fronius a look. Um, Their Magic Wave is the model that you would be looking at. That's uh, comparable to the ones we're talking here. But let's put that aside. The five I recommend. Let's go in order from least expensive to most expensive. First up, like I said, is that AHP Alpha TIG. The model I had was their 201XD. They just came out with a digital version of it. It's the same price. I don't know how it's the same price because it's it's got way more features um, and more exact settings than the one that I have. But they're still selling this thing for 690. dollars which is fucking wild. Um, I will tell you right now, this is the best deal in TIG welding. There are cheaper ones. Like I said, people will go on Amazon and they're like, I found one for 300 It's probably not going to hold up. Uh, I would strongly recommend that if you're going to get one at all, you go at least with the AHP. Um, I've talked to their warranty department personally, so I know for a fact that they actually have people on the phone who will troubleshoot stuff with you. Um, I had an issue with mine when I first got it and they sorted it out for me. We'll get into that later when we talk about warranty and stuff like that. AHP Alpha TIG 200 amp machine. Um, all of these ones that we're gonna talk about right here are 200 amp machines. We'll get into that a little more when we talk about features, but for your first welder, I think that's a really good place to start, and it's what a lot of companies make as like their, you know, their base model. So you got the AHP AlphaTig, you got the Everlast Arc 200 DV. So this is a step up, in my opinion, from AHP. This is like if, if you can swing the AHP, but you've got some extra money, and you're like Am I getting more by going up to? I think the Power Arc these days is going for like twelve hundred bucks. Are you getting more by going to the Everlast if they're both two hundred amp machines? And I think you are. I think the Everlast is a little smoother. I think their customer support is even better. Uh, they they've got a headquarters in California. The Everlasts have been around forever. Uh, they're not a legacy name like Miller or Lincoln, but They do have a huge following and a bunch of the YouTube channels are actually going to Everlast Machines. So they're definitely starting to saturate the market. Um, If you want to go up from that, now you're kind of getting into the legacy names. The big battle between Red and Blue, Miller and Lincoln. Lincoln has the Tig 200. So this is Another digital machine like the Power Arc. when I say I should mention what that is. So when we talk about digital versus analog, that's like whether you're actually seeing a readout. When you're turning your amps up, it's, if it's just a dial, it looks like a speedometer and wherever you set it is like pretty close to 65 you think, or digital where you're actually setting it to 65 exactly. That's the reason people pay more for digital because it's more consistent versus you making a little Sharpie mark on the on the Speedo and saying, okay, I turn it about here every time. My AHP is an analog machine. It works well enough, um, but some people like having that digital readout. So the TIG 200 is a digital machine. This one is going around 2K these days for the Lincoln. Now, personally, I think that Lincoln is not the most reliable machine. Um, I'm not going to put his business out there, so I won't give his name, but I have a buddy who has one who had some issues with his already. And thankfully, I think he had the board go on it, which is like a total replacement type situation. And he had it for less than a year. They did cover it under their warranty. This is what you get when you get like a Miller or a Lincoln, um, is you get that warranty, you get that domestic product support that you can call. So he got it replaced but the concern is always there of okay, well, how long till that happens again, and then it's not under warranty later. Um, so that one is a that one's a little tough. I've always had a love hate relationship with that machine. I have had people I've welded with one at one of my other buddies' places. Very smooth, stable arc. Not as many features on it as I would expect from a machine that costs two thousand. And when we get into the next segment, we'll get into all the features of and what you might need, what's necessary for you so you can understand. And that's where we'll start to pick apart these machines and try to narrow down why you might pick one or the other. This is just kind of the overview. So above that, above that TIG 200 in the 2.5K range is the ESAB Rebel 215. Now you're into the multi-process. This is your MIG, TIG, stick machine. It's a bigger unit for sure. With the touchscreen on the front to make sure you can't fuck it up, so those things are handy for people that are that are just getting into it. But by the end of this podcast, I will tell you, don't let the touchscreen be the selling feature for you because you will. It's not that much to understand, and by the end of this podcast, you're going to understand enough to set up any machine. So you really you really don't have to worry about that. But super capable. It's one machine that does everything. If you're doing it all in your garage and you never have to move it. That might not be the worst thing in the world. And people, the the welding YouTube channels are going nuts for that machine. Everybody's got the ESAB Rebel if they're making welding YouTube videos. Uh, Also, ESAB is a domestic company too. So you can get product support. You can get parts for them. It's just like Miller or Lincoln. So there is a benefit to that. And then, last but not least, we got... My dream machine here, the Miller Dynasty. So the Dynasty is the pretty much the standard for a TIG welder. If you're working in a high production facility that's TIG welding all day, every day, running the machines constantly, nine times out of ten, it's gonna be a either a Miller Dynasty, which is the does steel and aluminum, or it's gonna be the Miller Max Star which is the the little portable one that I have. So Miller is four and a half grand though. That's big money, super big money. Do I recommend that for somebody who's just at home doing their thing, trying to get their first TIG welder? Absolutely not. Um, Not because it's not the best machine, but because you don't need to spend four and a half thousand dollars on a TIG welder just to get started. It's too much money. We're going to go over some of the accessories to some of the other things that you're going to need. Um, Because sometimes people make the mistake of looking at it and say, okay, how much does the welder cost? Yes, I have that much money. Okay, I'll buy that welder. Not realizing there's there's some other stuff that some other costs you're gonna incur too. Uh, We'll get into that, but these are just the baseline prices of the machines. All right, so let's talk about some of the features. What are some of the things that you might be looking for in a machine to do what you need to do? If you're listening to this, there's a good chance that you're buying this machine to build motorcycles. So let me say, first off, uh, one of the biggest features people look at when they're considering machine is how many amps it puts out. Like I said in the beginning of this show, all of these machines we're comparing right now are 200 amp machines. 200 amp machines will do anything you need to do on a motorcycle. A lot of times people are worried like, hey, is 200 amps going to be enough? Do I need to spend even more money for like a 250 amp? In my opinion, for your first TIG welder, no. Most motorcycle frames are one-eighth inch tubing. One-eighth inch tubing welds at around 125 amps, maybe even a little less if you like hung out there in one spot. So a 200 amp machine is plenty for what you're going to be doing. Um, so as far as features go, you're going to want to look for at least that though. And the reason I say 200, you say, okay, well, if I only need 125, then can I buy a 160 and save a little money? The reason I say you might not want to do that is because of what what's called duty cycle. This is something that people almost never look at, which is crazy. People looking at machines never look at the duty cycle of the machine, but it's unbelievably important. So if you buy a 160 amp machine and the duty cycle says this machine can run, and basically what duty cycle is is how many minutes out of 10 minutes that machine can run before it overheats. What's an example of that? Say you have a 60% duty cycle. That means that that machine can run flat out just while welding for six minutes before it needs to take a break at whatever amperage. So the way they'll do it is I'll say like on a 200 amp machine, they'll say you have a 100% duty cycle at 150 amps. That means you could, you could literally hold that torch all day if you had a water cooler hooked up to it and just run that thing flat out at 150 So if you're doing motorcycle work right in the 125 to 150 range, a 200 amp machine will run that continuously. If you get a 160 amp machine, that duty cycle, instead of being 100% at that amperage range, might only be 50%. So now all of a sudden, you can only run for five minutes at a time, and then you got to let that machine take a break. Are you super likely to run up against a duty cycle as a a chopper builder? Probably not. But why push the machine harder than you have to? If you can get a 200 amp that's still pretty small and not have to worry about duty cycle ever, it's just much better off. So the amperage of the machine is something to look at. The duty cycle of the machine is something to look at. And every website lists that. Um, It's given for a specific amperage though right? So that 200 amp machine, it'll say 100% at 150, 60% at 200. So that lets you know, okay, at max amps, the machine has a 60% duty cycle. That's really, that's the industry standard. You want to see that 60% at max amperage. If your max amperage is only like 20%, that's probably a budget machine. It really shouldn't be putting out 200 amps, but they're like fucking whatever, sell it anyway. (laughs) And they fucking ship it. So that's something you're going to want to look out for. Other features. Let me give you a list here. We're going to talk about alternating current, AC balance, AC frequency, pulse, high frequency, um, and then 2T and 4T controls. These are like the main features. When you look at a TIG welder and you see that there's a whole bunch of knobs on the front, that's what they're adjusting. So we're going to go over what they mean. Do you need them? Do you not need them? And why you might feel that way so the first one alternating current if you're only gonna buy one machine i super recommend that you get one that has alternating current alternating current in layman's terms just means it welds aluminum so we don't have to get into all the nitty gritty if you're interested um shoot me a message we can chop it up it's super technical um but I love talking about that shit. So if you're interested in what AC actually is, it's alternating between electrode negative and electrode positive. We won't get bogged down in the weeds for this because this is just getting you started. So I would recommend you get a machine that has alternating current. That being said, you will pay like 500 bucks more. Uh, that Alpha TIG, like I said, is 700. That is a crazy low price for a $200, or excuse me, for a 200 amp machine that has alternating current. Most direct current only machines maybe 300, 400 bucks for your entry level ones, so you are paying almost double for the one that's got it. Uh, you might think though, hey, all my motorcycle is steel, I'm not going to need to weld any aluminum. I think that that is going to come back to bite you. I can almost guarantee it's going to come back to bite you because somebody is going to come to you with something or you're going to buy something and think like, oh, fuck, if I could just weld aluminum, this would have been so much easier. Like uh, Shovel Sam, who we met at Deadbeat, brought a, an aluminum foot peg, Chopper Dave foot peg, and he cracked it, broke one of the mounts off. I got to build it back up, drill a, drill a new hole through it so it can go back on the bike. Aluminum foot peg. If I had, if I did not have AC on the machine, wouldn't be able to do it. Other things that might be, uh, if you work on dirt bikes at all, a lot of those mounts for the exhausts are aluminum as well. Some of the cans are aluminum. I did a job for a guy who needed to retrofit an old. Excuse me, he needed to retrofit the part of the of the can, the stock can that had the sticker on it, onto a new exhaust because you're not actually allowed to change your exhaust on these dirt bikes. That's another job. If I didn't have the aluminum capability, couldn't do it. Our homie Fish brought a loading dock ramp, like a huge, super thick, like quarter inch thick aluminum loading dock that they use over at the dealer. And that's another one. It's not always the things that you're doing so much as it is like once you get this welder, you got to think a little bit further down the line. You get this welder, you're going to get established. You're going to become the guy. You're going to be the go-to guy where people are like, oh, he could weld this. Oh, he's got a welder. I think, and then the first, I tell you, this happens all the time. It's like when you're a welder, you don't care so much about it. You don't think so much about it. But the first thing people tend to ask you when you're a welder is, oh, can you weld aluminum? Can you weld aluminum? This is like the the fucking big dick bragging rights thing where you're just like, uh, yeah, I can weld aluminum. And then they're like, oh, sick. Then I have all these aluminum projects that my other friends can't weld or that like they have a basic MIG welder so they can't weld aluminum. And they're like, fuck, I need somebody that can weld aluminum. Just get it. Spend the extra money. It's absolutely worth it to just have the capability on deck for whenever you're ready to do it. So that's alternating current you've got some other settings that go along with alternating current. Now, not all machines that have alternating current have these settings. So it's AC balance and AC frequency. What these do is they allow you to tweak the way your machine is welding the aluminum depending on the project that you're working on. Super, super important to have these. If you're going to have alternating current at all, let it be one that has these adjustments. So when you're talking about balance, so I'm realizing that if we're going to talk about balance, I know we said we weren't going to get into AC because it was kind of technical. I'm realizing we can't really talk about balance and frequency if we don't at least skim the concept of what AC is. So alternating current is basically the machine switching many, many times per second between electrode positive positive and electrode negative. There is more specificity on what those are, but let's just break it down in a very simple way. Electrode negative is the penetrating side of the arc, and then electrode positive is the cleaning side of the arc. That might not make a ton of sense right now, but just remember, negative is the penetrating side, positive is the cleaning side. So, When you're dealing with aluminum, you've got this scummy layer on the top, this white layer that when you weld, you'll see a haze uh, all over the metal wherever you're welding. What that is, is it's the oxides on top of the aluminum need to melt off before the base metal can melt. The problem is those oxides burn at a way higher heat than the metal does. This is why you can't use direct current to weld aluminum. So, you have to use alternating current so you get these big fluctuations between electrode positive and electrode negative. What you're doing when you adjust the balance is you're telling the machine, this is a setting that can go anywhere from 30 to 99. Um, If you're setting it to 30, you're telling the machine to spend 30% of the cycle on electrode negative. If you were to set it to 70 it'd be setting 70% of the time on electronegative. So when you're adjusting the balance, think of it as your ability to adjust whether that arc is going to penetrate deep down into the metal, or if it's going to clean the surface of the metal. So here's an example of why you might wanna do one or the other and why it's so important to have the ability to adjust it because older machines, transformer machines, They were set at a particular balance, and you could not adjust it. So it was just hard set, and you just had to fucking deal with it. Nowadays, we have these inverter machines that are way smaller, way more portable, way more energy efficient, um, and they have a lot more adjustability. So let's say you're welding super thick, Actually, you know what? Here's a better example because this is on a lot of motorcycles. Let's say you're welding cast aluminum, like cases. These are going to be oil-soaked and shitty, and cast doesn't weld great under the best of circumstances, (laughs) let alone when it's a motorcycle that's been abused its entire life and there's oil and grime and dirt and shit all over it, and you wipe it down with acetone and you think you got it all, but believe me, it's porous in there. There's a bunch of little holes in the aluminum. And it's going to be filthy. If you're welding that kind of stuff, you're going to want to turn that balance so that it favors electrode positive. Uh, I should stop here too because here's something that will drive you nuts. When I said a second ago you're adjusting the percent of time it spends on electrode negative, that's on domestic machines. (laughs) this is this will really fuck you up and it's, it's very unfortunate that this didn't get standardized uh between countries but some machines when you're adjusting the balance you're adjusting the percent of time it spends on the positive side so it's the opposite so for example my ahp is adjusting the amount of time it spends on the positive side but my miller is adjusting the opposite so it's important to read your manual and know which one you're dealing with um Point being, if you're welding something like cast aluminum that's super shitty, you don't need to worry so much about penetrating down into it. You need to worry about cleaning all the scum and the oxides and the grime out of it. So in that case, you want to turn that balance so that the machine spends more time on the positive end. And then if you were welding something that was like a machined aluminum part, and you needed, you had like a little groove joint that you needed to really make sure you got good penetration in there because this is going to be a load bearing piece. That's something where you would want to favor electro negative because that's going to penetrate down into that joint. Whereas if you set it the opposite, it's just going to end up laying on top. Now, for some things where you just need them to seal oil and not crack, it doesn't matter if it's just laying on top. But for other applications, you really do need to make sure you're getting down into a joint. So being able to adjust that is super important. Next up is AC frequency. So this one's going to be a lot easier to understand because you already know the machine is switching from electronegative to electrode positive. What the frequency is doing is exactly that. It's telling the machine how often, how many times per second to make that switch. So like on the old transform machines, this was another thing. It was hard set. 60 hertz. That means 60 times a second. It's changing from electronegative to positive. That is good for some stuff, bad for other stuff. Here's the quick start guide to understanding that. The higher the frequency, the narrower and more focused the arc is going to be. So if you're trying to... N- run a tiny, narrow little bead that looks super clean, you're going to want that frequency up around 120 to 150. Maybe even as high as 200 if, if it needs to be like very, very precise. On the flip side of that, if you're trying to put more heat and help the aid in that penetration, you would, again, you'd favor electrode negative and you would turn that frequency down. Because that means you're making less switches between the two. You're spending more time on each one. It's going to widen that puddle out and put more heat into the part. So that's the basics of alternating current. I will also say that's the most confusing thing about all of TIG welding is, is those two concepts right there. So if you're still with us through those two, then everything we talk about from here to the complete end of the episode is going to be significantly easier to understand. And even if you don't get those two, stick with it, pick up all the rest of this info. You can come back and learn about alternating current at a later date. It's not important to to know everything right off the bat. Just get the machine that has it. That's the too long, didn't read version (laughs) of AC. Next up is pulse. So a lot of people... Look for pulse in a machine, and it, it really is a handy feature to have. Um, do you absolutely need it? No, it's not necessary. But a lot of these things, all the machines I listed out there, let's see, and make sure I look through all of these ones. Yes, all five I listed have pulse. So if you're buying something out of this list of recommendations that I drew up, automatically you're going to have pulse on your machine. What does it do? Very simply put, it alternates. (laughs) I know you're having nightmares already. I thought we were done with the alternating part. I shouldn't have put pulse right after AC. But while we're on the topic, it alternates between two different amperages. So basically, you can choose to go from really high to really low or you know from really low to just somewhere in the middle you get to set the two amperages that you're going to be going to and from and it's really handy for it's really handy on things that people aren't thinking about usually when people are thinking pulse they're like oh okay I'll set the pulser to pulse once every second and then I'll dab filler wire In on every pulse and it'll make like this really nice looking beat and it might, it it does I should put it that way, it does you can use it like that but that's like not a super important, you could do that without pulse if that's all you were going to do and that's all you were looking to use it for what pulse is really handy for is working on thinner metals, we'll get to this, I, I did take a sneak peek at some of the questions before I started recording here there When you're working with thinner metals, dissipating heat or keeping the heat from getting way too built up in the part to where it blows out and you blow a hole in it, Pulse makes that a lot easier because let's say you're doing, I like to take all of these things and then relate them to motorcycles because you guys are probably interested in this for bikes. So let's talk about where does Pulse help you? Gas tanks is a great spot for Pulse for two reasons. One, what I just said, it keeps from putting too much heat in to the part, especially if you turn that pulse up high. Like, say you put it to 25 pulses per second. These things are are crazy these days, by the way. They go to 500 uh, on a lot of machines. My machine at work goes to 500. The one here at my house, the AHP, that thing goes to 250. That's ludicrous. You don't need that at all. It also sounds absolutely outrageous. (laughs) If you want to have everybody in your shop or home hate you, crank your pulse to 500 and run some beads. Uh, so basically, it would be handy on a gas tank because I would set that pulse around 25 pulses per second and what that's going and I would set basically the parameters you get are you get to pick the peak amperage. and then instead of picking the lower amperage, you pick the percent of the peak, right? So let's uh, let's say I'm welding at 100 amps. I would set my base amp to 30%, which in this example would be 30 amps. So my machine's gonna flicker between 100 and 30, however many times per second I set it to. Now if you set it to once per second, you're really gonna notice. You're gonna watch the machine go click, 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 click. But if you're setting it to 25, it's just going to sound like a hum in the, in the light of the, of the arc. It's just going to look a little flickery to you. But what it does is it keeps from pumping heat into that gas tank and heating up all the metal around it. And you would still function the torch the same way. You're still going to move it along the joint, dabbing filler wire every you know half a second or so. Same way you would as if you were running without pulse, but you're just going to keep yourself from being as likely to blow a hole in it. Um, So it's super good for that. What else is it good for? Let's say you're making an oil tank, right? And for the sake of this example, let's say this is like you've got your standard pill style oil tank and you're trying to weld the end caps onto it. Flat end caps onto what is essentially a 10 inch pipe right? This is like your your basic oil tank. So you could put those end caps on there and where pulse really shines is corner joints like that. So you've got this end cap, which is the same diameter as the pipe. You put that onto the pipe, you tack four sides of it. So it's held on there. And now you're ready to run the joint with pulse it makes doing a fusion weld really easy. So you're not gonna use any filler metal. You're gonna set your pulser. this is now where you're gonna set it to something more more noticeable, right? Let's say you set it to to pulse twice per second. So you're gonna get this steady click, 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 and you're just going to move that tungsten across the joint, and on every blast, it's going to fuse those two metals together and you're going to get this perfectly symmetrical, as long as you move your hand, you know, smoothly across it and don't get like stuck in one spot. But if you, so long as you do your part and you move your hand in a fluid motion, Pulse will put those two parts together with a perfect looking bead and just melt them right into each other. And you don't even need to use filler on it. You could, um, but but you don't have to. It's uh on a corner joint like that, you wouldn't need it. And that's the, that's the funny thing about pulse because that's usually people are thinking of dabbing the filler metal in there, but I think it's kind of the opposite. The times when I think pulse is really handy for a weld like that is on fusion joints when I'm not dabbing. So long story short, pulse is handy to have for fusion joints and for keeping heat out of parts that you don't want to blow a hole in next up is high frequency this is a feature that does come standard again on all these machines Um, i'm taking you through them because usually what happens is you you lay out these recommendations of a machine and somebody finds a less expensive machine and they say well what about this one compared to all the ones that you were talking about and this is this is why i'm going over these features even though they come standard on all of these because you're not going to have them come standard on less expensive machines. So this is a good, it's good for you to know what you would get and then what you're giving up if you decide to go with something else. So high frequency, this is basically, I almost think for a beginner, it's more of a must have. And then as you get more experience, You don't need it as much, but you're more likely to have it because now you're buying more expensive machines. It's kind of funny how that works. The cheaper machines are what they call lift arc machines, which means you have to touch the tungsten to the metal and then lift it off. And in doing so, that's what starts the current. On a a high frequency start, picture your standard foot pedal or your button switch on the, the torch. You just press the foot pedal and there you go. The arc starts, it jumps across the piece, and you don't have to actually touch the tungsten to the metal. This is handy because a lot of times beginners, and this is why I say lift arc is not so great for beginners because it's really easy to fuck it up, uh, to like stick the tungsten in there and then you go to pull it away and it kind of gets stuck or you don't get a good clean arc start and then you've, you've now contaminated the tungsten and you have to grind it again. So that's kind of a pain in the ass. I don't recommend going lift arc only. I have a lift arc only machine. My Miller uh, does not have high frequency because it's one of the base models. Um, It works fine for what I do with it, but it takes practice. So for your first machine, make it easy on yourself. Get a high frequency start. High frequency is also really handy if you're doing a bunch of tacks. Like say you're tacking up an exhaust, right? and you've got all these pie cuts or, yeah, let's say it's pie cuts, or even if it's not pie cuts and it's something easier, like just elbows or 45s, it would be an absolute nightmare to do that with a lift arc machine because you're going to have to hold the piece, touch the tungsten, lift it up, and then cancel the arc, which on most lift arc machines, you cancel the arc by yanking the torch away from the piece. So you're going to be doing this like, really involved start stop process on very delicate parts and you could easily do it but i would never do it i would never use my miller (laughs) to tack up an exhaust unless i had to unless i was traveling somewhere and like that's what i've got so we have to make it work but you're listening to this because you want to have a good experience so don't fuck yourself get a machine that has high frequency start and you're gonna have a way better time all right Next up is 2T-4T. This is a very... Again, I, I don't want to put my opinion on this so much as I do want to tell you the important facts of like what these things are because you're going to hear about them when you're looking at machines. 2T-4T is basically... allows you to program in... Procedures. Think of it that way. So let's start with two T. Two T is for it's the T is for touch. So far as I understand, I'm pretty sure that's what it means. Um, so two touch would be you've got like a button on your TIG torch. You push it once. Excuse me. You press it, and now the torch is going. You know your arc is going, and when you release it, it stops. Two touch. Once when you push it down. Once when you lift it off. 4T allows you to do... It's basically a substitute for a foot pedal, in essence. Um, so what it does is when you, push the tor- when you push the torch down... Or excuse me, you push the button. And it, it's usually used with a button. That's why I say in substitute, if you had a foot pedal, you would never use 4T. Um, but if you've only got a torch button, it operates like this. You push it down. That's your starting amps. You, you let it go... And now the machine cranks up automatically to whatever you set as your peak amps. And then you weld, 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 do your thing. And instead of just yanking the torch away, which is going to remove the shielding gas from your puddle and make it all gray and shitty looking, instead of pulling it away, you push it again. Now it goes back down to your starting amps. And then you let it go again, and it terminates the arc. So it's four touches. You're essentially... Pressing and releasing the button twice, it goes from low to high, then back from high to low, and then your post flow goes. So it's one of those things that I would highly recommend you get a foot pedal, even if you're going to do a lot of stuff that doesn't require a foot pedal. Um, It's just good to have because when you're learning... Being able to adjust your amperage on the fly, that's what a foot pedal's doing, in case anybody doesn't know this, you know, as soon as you begin to apply pressure to the foot pedal, your arc starts, and then the harder you push the pedal, the more the amps go up. And then as you back it off, the amps come back down. That's really handy just because, well, two things. It's really handy for one, because if you're working on thin stuff like a gas tank, uh, it's very easy For as you start going along that weld, you're building up a lot of heat in that piece. And the more heat that builds up, the closer you are to blowing a hole. That foot pedal lets you back the heat off and lower the amount of heat you're putting into the piece if things start getting squirrely and a little too out of control. If you just had like a lift arc machine with no torch switch and no foot pedal, you are locked in at one amperage. And if it's not going well, you better bail the fuck out, snap that torch away, and give some time for the piece to cool off. Much better to have that foot pedal, especially when you're first learning. The other reason is that having a foot pedal lets you start the arc and stop the arc without losing your shielding gas. Now, this is something everybody, well, actually, you know, this is supposed to be the intro one. So let's remind everybody when you're TIG welding, you're using argon gas. And in order for me to explain why it's important to be able to taper off the amperage, I need to explain quickly uh, what is actually happening when you're welding. So that argon gas, when you're welding, is flowing out of the TIG torch over that liquid metal. And what it's doing, a lot of people think that the argon is interacting with the metal and that's what's keeping it from getting porosity. But it's actually not doing anything at all with the metal. The reason we use argon is because it's heavier and denser than air. So all that argon is doing is pushing the air away from that molten puddle so that the air can't get into it. Because if the air gets into it, you get porosity. Porosity is like all those little holes. um, Comes from the word porous, right? Like a sponge. It ends up looking like that. If air gets into your weld puddle, you will get that porosity. All that air will dive into that liquid metal and create all these little air pockets. And the only way to get rid of it is to grind it back out and start over. It's a real pain in the ass. This is why you can't TIG weld out in the open air, in the wind, Because anytime the air blows, it's going to blow that shielding gas away from the puddle and there goes your weld. Ask me how I know. I've tried to do this many, many times and it's just a nightmare. You'd have to set up like barriers or something like that to keep the wind from getting in the way. So that being said, what the foot pedal lets you do is taper off the amperage while keeping that argon gas on the puddle. The alternative, remember I said before you could snap the torch off of the, you know, you're down there right next to the metal, you're dab, 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 you're welding and then you just snap the torch away. The problem with that is for a little second there, while that puddle is still molten metal, you're snapping that argon away from it and it's going to get this little crater that they call a fisheye. Now, this is an intro episode on getting you into TIG welding. So I'm trying to tread this line between what matters to you as the person who's likely to be listening to this and what doesn't. So let's say you're doing motorcycle work and you're welding a tab on your frame and you have to lay on the ground, like a brake tab, right? So you're laying on the ground so that you can weld a brake stay tab to the bottom side of your frame. And you're like, well, shit, I can't work the foot pedal while I'm laying on the ground and hold the piece up there. What, what do I do? And if you were to do lift arc on that thing and dab, 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 make your way all the way across and then snap out at the end, it's fine. It really is fine. I'm telling you these things because there are, there are times when you wouldn't want to do it. If you're welding a gas tank together, don't use lift arc and snap out you will leave these little holes and your gas tank will leak. That's a situation where put your gas tank up on a table, get yourself a foot pedal and taper off. Every time you're done with a weld, slowly bring that pedal up until the arc stops and leave your torch there after you're done. After you've actually like broken the arc, you've completely backed off the foot pedal and the arc stops. Don't move your torch away because that gets into our last section that we're going to talk about with regard to settings, and that's post flow. So that whole thing we just touched on where that puddle needs to remain covered by that argon so that you don't get porosity in there, this applies even after you're done welding because it might not, it might still, Jesus, it might not still be liquid, but it is still in need of shielding until it cools a little bit more. So taper off that foot pedal and then when you're done, that's when your post flow begins. As soon as the arc ends, your post flow is how many seconds after the arc ends that your TIG torch keeps pumping out argon. So a good baseline setting for that would be like five seconds if you're doing mild steel. Mild steel is not as important. If you're doing stainless and you really want the stainless to be you know, nice and shiny and perfectly silver, maybe you'd set that higher like 10 seconds. Um, at work, I think also when I say at work, things are different at work because when you're at work, you're using a giant, like 10 foot by 10 foot industrial vat of argon. It like literally doesn't matter how much you use. Um, so at work, yeah, I have that, I have that thing set to fucking 16 seconds and sometimes I'll hang out there for 16 seconds. Uh, Because we're doing all stainless. And if you move it away too early with stainless, it'll discolor. It'll look purple if you move it really soon. And then if you like wait five seconds and then you pull it away, it'll be like an amber, like a yellowish color. But if you hang out for 16 seconds and let that thing stay until it really has time to cool off, it'll be perfectly silver. Um, Now. Why? So that right there is enough of an example as to why post flow might matter to you because sometimes you want it really high and other times you want it really low. So that situation I just described with the silvery stainless, probably not super likely you're going to run into that in your garage. But here's something you absolutely are going to run into because I ran into it so many times and I still run into it from time to time. If you don't know this, welding supply stores where you get your argon gas are either closed on Saturdays or they're only open for a few hours and they're always closed on Sundays. That's usually when you're doing all your bike work. So unless you run out Friday night and you can swing over there Saturday morning and you're lo- my local one's not even open on Saturday morning, there might be... I shouldn't say might, there will be a situation where you are super low on argon and you need to make this argon last for the end of this project. In a situation like that, having the ability to take your post flow and turn it down to three, or maybe you're doing a bunch of tacks first, put that post flow on half a second. You don't even need the post flow. But if you have a machine that's hard set, that has a predetermined post flow that's based on the amperage, then there's nothing you can do about it. Every tack you do, your machine is going to bleed out that much argon. And as you watch the, the chance of the dream of finishing this project before the weekend float away from your argon bottle, you're going to think to yourself, fuck, I should have bought a machine with adjustable post flow. My AHP has it, the Power Arc from Everlast has it. The Miller Dynasty has it. The Rebel 215 has it. But for whatever reason, even though the Lincoln TIG 200 is $2,000, which is more than the the Everlast and the Alpha TIG, it doesn't have it. You can't adjust the post flow. Why? It's $2,000. Can you tell I'm pissed off at this machine? I have like this big gripe against the fucking Lincoln TIG 200 because... I just don't understand why it costs what it costs. Uh, it does have adjustable AC balance and, and frequency, which is great, but that's like such a basic feature to be missing on a machine that's that expensive. Um, some machines, they don't, they just don't have it. Like I said, the, the Lincoln doesn't, my little traveling Miller Maxstar Star 161, which I love because of the size, um, it doesn't have adjustable post flow either. And that thing is hard set and it's fucking high. So if it's, if it's 100, excuse me, its base setting is 10 seconds. So no matter what, you can't turn it lower than 10 seconds. And then everything after 100 amps, like once you get to 110, that's 11 seconds. 120, uh, to 120 that is 12 seconds. And it goes all the way up like that to 16 seconds at 160. I guess they make it like that because if you, a lot of people buy that machine to go do uh, stainless steel piping. So they know that like, okay, if you're going to go do, build a brewery and you're going to take this machine, we're going to probably want to have a 16 second post flow. And over here, I'm thinking like, yeah, I might, but I also might fucking not. So why don't you just build in adjustable post flow? Now, this is actually a good example too, of trying to decide what machine works for you. And why you might go one way or the other. So you might be hearing that, that Miller story and thinking, well, why would you spend $1,100? Fucking crazy money for a very, very basic lift arc machine with almost no features. Um, but it's the smallest and lightest out of any machine that's offered. So nobody makes a smaller or lighter version of it. And then then we get back to, okay, what other things are important? Remember when I talked about duty cycle? There's also written on every welder a listing of what amperage it can put out and off of what type of circuit. So on that miller, it'll say when plugged into your, your household outlet, your 120 volt, it'll pull 130 amps on TIG. Now Everlast for $500 makes a 161 machine that was made directly to compete with the, uh, with the miller. And it had, the Everlast version has adjustable post flow, which mine doesn't. It has pulse, which mine doesn't. Um, and it's got a whole bunch of different settings that, that are super handy. Really cool stuff. But this is where you have to dig into the nitty gritty if you really want to know what's going to work for you. The problem with that Everlast is that when it's plugged into, they're both 160 amp machines. And here's where these fucking companies will get you. They expect that you're not going to read the fine print on the capabilities of the machine. They're both 160 amps if they're plugged into 220 or 230 or 240, whatever it is these days. I can't fucking keep up. So when you're plugged into 220, we're just going to call it 220. Fuck it. When you're plugged into 220, both of them do 160. But these are small portable machines. So you're very likely to be using them in situations where you're traveling to a place that is not likely to have 220 where you're going. So you're probably going to be plugged in on 110. Here's the, here's the rub. Even though that Everlast machine has a bunch more features, when you're plugged into 110, you can only get 90 amps out of it. You're limited to 90 amps. So for a traveling machine, I basically consider those machines to be 110 Machines, Because that's, that's what you're always going to end up using. If you were home, you'd be using your bigger machine plugged into 220. So those are the kind of things you have to look out for. I bought the Miller because I needed that amperage. At the time, I was doing sprinkler pipe and we were welding some Schedule 40 pipe, which is like super thick stuff. 90 amps just wouldn't cut it. I would have loved to have all the other features, but... They sell them both as 160 amps. That's what they're billed as, but they're not both capable of pulling the same off a 120 outlet. So those are the kind of things. Think about what you're going to do with this machine, and then you can decide, okay, this is the one for me, and this is why. And if you have two machines that you have trouble deciding between, shoot me a message. Ferro Fabrication on Instagram, I will... Help. I'll take a look at the specs on both. I'll point out anything that I think is like, oh, well, that seems weird. Uh, Duty cycle. Compare the two duty cycles. If they're both 200 amp machines and one is 60% at 200 amps and then the other one's only 20% duty cycle at 200 amps buy the 60. You need the one that's going to be able to keep up. So I guess that's what I'm saying. It's just try to keep the future in mind. Even if right now... You know, you think to yourself, you're only doing little projects here and there. Always assume later on down the road, you're going to get a little more into this. So try to buy a little more machine than you need right now, because eventually you're still going to think it's not enough. (laughs) I bought a 200 amp machine. And if I was buying another machine now, I would buy, I'd probably buy a 300 amp Everlast just to future-proof my investment. Because I think the Everlasts that are in the 300-amp range are going for like 2,500. That would be a pretty good machine to have. Not because I need to weld at 300 amps, but because things I need to weld at 200 amps would be at 100% duty cycle, which is just fucking phenomenal. Um, Especially if you're doing a lot of aluminum. If you find yourself getting into aluminum heavily, having that extra amperage is going to be more important to you than it would be to someone who's doing regular steel and stainless. Aluminum takes a lot more amperage to get the same results. Um, So just keep that in mind. All right. So that's enough about the features for now. That gives you a good sense of what's out there that you might be looking for in a welder, a couple models that you can choose from if you're trying to pick your first welder, what the functions do, and why they may or may not be important for you. Next, mm, after a sip of some cold Guinness, oh, it's fucking delicious. Next, let's touch on some of the other stuff. I said before, you might be buying a welder and thinking, okay, the welder's 700 bucks, done. I'm going to be welding for 700 bucks. No. There are other things that you have to buy, just like with other processes, you know, just like with MIG, you have to buy the welder, and then you also have to sell the welder and buy a TIG welder. No, I'm kidding. You have to buy the MIG gas that goes with it. Just like that with TIG, you need to buy argon gas. So these are sold in cylinders, and they come in a bunch of different sizes, um, The loss where you are might be different than where they are with me. For me, the biggest size I can get is an 80 cubic inch, or no, cubic feet. God, I can't remember. I just know that it's an 80, or maybe it's a 120. Either way, ask your local welding supply, what is the biggest size cylinder that you sell? That if you're going to buy it, it's going to cost, I think mine... I bought one size down from the biggest size and it was 175 And then when I wanted to upgrade, I think I paid another 50 to upgrade. Um, so call it two, between 200 and 250 um, That's at a local mom and pop shop, which I highly recommend. I talked a lot of shit on a previous episode about mom and pop insurance companies and the, how they're fucking you over and never shop there. Uh, The opposite is true when it comes to mom and shop welding supplies. You do want to shop there because air gas in Matheson and I'm trying to think of who else is even out. Maine Oxy, they will charge you an arm and a fucking leg for everything, everything. Um, To give an example, I pay 40 bucks at the mom and pop to fill my Argon bottle. It's 80 bucks at air gas. 80 bucks. I can fill it twice at the mom and pop for the cost to fill it at air gas. So, if there's any place you can find that isn't a major outlet like that, get it from them. Okay. So you need an argon bottle. You also need Oh, and then there's a, one other thing I should mention on that topic. There's there's some debate on this uh, It's personal preference, really. You can do what I did and buy the cylinder and you own it. And then when you go to fill it, they actually like fill that cylinder. It's not like when you go to Walmart with your propane can and you stand for 20 minutes and wait for somebody to come out and help you. And then they say they don't have the keys to the propane cylinder and you just go home. It's not like that. This is like they fill your cylinder and then you go home with the actual product you're looking for. Uh, The other option is you can lease a bottle. Now, remember when I said I got the biggest one you can, if you lease a bottle, they will give you the full size, like it's up to your chest height, Uh, the big industrial ones. I think they're 300 is the size. Um, Those ones, you would, it would take you a fucking long time to go through that welding in your garage on a hobby level. Um, So that's the plus size. So what happens with that is instead of paying 200 or whatever amount of money up front in owning that cylinder, you pay a lease. So you basically pay. I, I, so I don't do it this way because um, I just wanted to own it and be done with it. But if you were doing a lot of welding, you might go through these like homeowner size bottles quicker than I do. And it might just get inconvenient for you to go back and forth from the welding supply. Uh, if you lease it, Not only is the bottle huge, but I'm pretty sure they come to your house, too, and they'll swap it out, and they'll drop off a new one, pick up the old one, and you're not even involved. Well, I mean, they'll bill you, but (laughs) you don't have to do anything um, in that process. You just leave it outside for them. So that's kind of handy. I I guess it depends on what they charge you per year. Uh, I have friends that do it that way. I haven't asked them what it costs per year to do it, but that's an option, too, Um, and it's a little more hands-off. Let's see. So... Next thing you need. So you need the bottle, and then you need a regulator. Now, most of these machines come with a regulator. I'm pretty sure all of these machines come with a regulator. Um, the only one I don't know about is, oddly enough, the most expensive, the Dynasty. I don't know if it actually ships with a regulator. Uh, for 4500 it fucking better, but <laughs> the basic... Uh, Thing is, this is what the regulator is what screws onto your argon bottle and lets you determine how much gas is coming out. And it's cfm, or excuse me, cfh, um, cubic feet per hour is usually how they read out. And basically, you screw this thing on, and then there's a little hose runs from the bottle to the back of your welder, and then the welder has a gas solenoid inside. So as soon as you start the arc, it knows okay send the gas out to the take torch. So that's the way the system plugs in. That's the way that it works. Um, The regulator, the ones that come with these entry-level machines like the AHP and the Everlast, they get a bad rap, but I'll be honest, mine's been working fine. Um, I actually use it, so I don't use it at at my house. At my house, I have a, a nice one. I have a Smith's. And on the road, when I take my little Mac Star to go do jobs on the road, I use the one that came with the AHP, which is like a, a no-name brand. Um, that, not the AHP is a no-name brand. The regulator that came with it, I don't even know who makes it. But it's never leaked. It's always been accurate, and I've never had any trouble with it. So the ones that come with the machines, if the machine you buy comes with one, run them try them and see how they see how they work out and if at that point if it doesn't then maybe look into getting a smith's or a miller Um, those are the two flame tech is another company that i hear good things about and harris is another one so those are a couple brand a couple names that are big on the regulator side of things Um, it's something you buy once and you have literally forever all right So, the one thing I would encourage you to do, though, is if you're planning on, again, trying to loop this back to bikes. If you're buying this because you want to make a stainless exhaust, and you want to back purge that exhaust. Which is basically where you've got the argon gas coming out of the TIG torch. And you also, because this is something you do with stainless, um, if you're welding a stainless tube and you don't have argon gas on the inside of the tube you're welding... It's going to sugar, which is basically like uh, oxidize and look like garbage. It'll look like all black bubble gum on the inside. It's super disgusting. It's really hard to get rid of. If it was on the inside of an exhaust pipe, you absolutely could not get rid of it. Um, and here's the big debate with that is people say that all that sugar impedes the airflow through the pipe. And they're right. It does. It does. Uh, it absolutely, there's no argument to be made that it flows the same, whether there's sugar on the inside or not. The big concern is that people think that you're not, you're, if you're building a custom exhaust for something, you're going to ride the piss out of it and it's not even going to last long enough for it to matter. Personally, if I was building one, I would back purge it. If I was using stainless, if I was using mild, you don't back purge on mild, um, Nobody does that, and it doesn't sugar the same way uh, that that stainless does. So if you're looking to buy a TIG welder because you have some idea of getting into exhaust work, I mentioned the machine at my home does not use the standard regulator. I bought a dual flow regulator for it, and I highly recommend doing that. If you're going to buy a regulator at all, like not just use the one that comes in the package, just buy a dual flow. Especially if it's only going to be at your house, because what that does is it gives you two ports off that regulator. So I can say, okay, I want you to send, you know, 20 CFH to my TIG torch. And then on my back purge, send 10 CFH because you don't need as much on the back purge as you do coming out of the torch. If you just use a Y joint and like split a line, you're just getting 50% to each and you have no control over that. Um, it's not that much more. You're talking about like 90 bucks versus 120 bucks for a a dual flow. I would just spend the extra money and just get the dual flow. Even if you almost never use the dual flow, just the fact that you could remember we said before, think about the future, think about what you might do down the road. So instead of having to rebuy it and then lose double the money because you bought one that you don't even use anymore because you upgrade later Just buy the good one from the start. That's the motto of today's entire getting started in TIG welding recap here. Buy the better one from the start. I know we all struggle with this, and I'm trying to get better with this. I fucking have done this with so many things over the course of buying fabrication equipment. Just buy the better version right off the bat. You will forget about the extra money you spent. But you will never forget about the features you didn't get because you got the shittier version. Trust me. Get a dual flow regulator. All right. Next up, your machine is probably going to come with a torch. All of these machines come with a torch. But you might consider down the road, and this is not something you need to get started, but down the road, get a smaller torch. These machines all come, I won't go through all the numbers because it's kind of boring and you're probably not going to remember it um, because it's easier to just look this up later and you'll be able to see it in front of you. Okay, 17 series torch is the big torch. That's the one that comes with all the machines with the huge like three inch pink cup on the front of it. And it's just like monstrous. It's so much bigger than it needs to be. And you're trying to weld on a motorcycle, um, getting around frame tubing, and you've got this gigantic torch with this huge long nozzle on the front. It's just really inconvenient to have. So you might consider in the future getting a 9 series torch, which is way smaller. Um, I, have, I like the Miller brand. They call them Weldcraft. Um, but you could just type Miller Torch if you forget the name Weldcraft and it'll still come up. Um, Their A125 is the smaller style. CK Worldwide is another company that makes really nice TIG torches. They call it a CK9. So those smaller torches fit in your hand easier. The head is way smaller. The neck is way shorter. And if you get the flex version, you can even flex the neck to get to all kinds of different angles. So if you got a, a machine, I would even say that getting, take two of these examples, right? Your Alpha Tig and your Everlast Power Arc. I would reco- I would think you'd be better off if you got the Alpha Tig for 700 and with the extra 500 you saved by the, by your tank. Buy a nice regulator and buy yourself a FlexHead 9 Series Torch and you would be in excellent shape. Better off than getting the Everlast. Um, Because if getting the Everlast means you're you're not going to buy the torch and you're not going to do the other stuff, eh, I don't think those features, I think a 9 Series Torch is going to make way more of a day-to-day difference for you than a couple extra features on the machine. Especially because those two, I don't even think there are any feature differences between the two of them. I think they're both exactly the same when it comes to features. Um, one has just Everlast has been around a little longer, so they can command a little bit of a higher price. So yeah, that Flex Head Nine Series torch. Um, next, this is the biggest one. Both both of those machines, the Alpha TIG and the Power Arc, come with it. A pedal is so important, it cannot be overstated. If you're learning to TIG and you don't have a pedal, it's not that it can't be done, it's just that you're making it so much harder for yourself than it needs to be. I say that, but then I also got this traditional bow and all my friends shoot compounds and they're like probably thinking, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying to you and you didn't take my advice. And that's true. And you might not take my advice (laughs) and you might get a machine without a foot pedal, but I'm telling you that foot pedal is just going to keep you from blowing holes in things and not knowing how to fix the problem because until you have a good mastery of where your heat needs to be, it's just super difficult to to gauge that. Um, Especially, like I said, if you're going to do thinner metals, absolutely mandatory to have a foot pedal. They both, yeah, they both come with it, so you don't even have to worry about that. Um, use the pedal. Use the pedal all that you can. And actually, I believe both of them also come with a finger switch, not an adjustable amperage finger switch. So you, you would be set to like one amperage, unless you want to do that 4T thing we talked about earlier. Um, but that finger switch can be kind of handy for things like the brake tab we talked about, or, you know, your welding just something out of position. You're welding on a the sissy bar and you're trying to hold something with both of your hands and also get the, the TIG torch in there and you're kind of off balance. It's It can be easy to just, okay, boop, press the button, let go of the button. It's tacked on there. You're good to go. The AHP comes with it. Power Art comes with it too. I will say on the AHP on mine, that uh, finger switch stopped working. So I guess that's kind of like a knock against AHP. So other things other accessories that might be handy for you. We're going to get into uh, some specific examples in the question section because I know some people asked about this stuff. Um, So I'll just say it briefly. Magnets, super handy. Strong hand tools make some great magnets. Uh, You're definitely going to want stuff like that on hand. A table, good table to work on. Makes a whole world of difference. I have a table from a company called CertiFlat. Um, I think it's weldtables.com is their website, super handy to have. I bought it almost immediately after buying the welder. It was 400 bucks and it was worth every penny. I know people that are like fucking around, kneeling, like building shit on the floor or trying to like cut things on the the floor and fixture things up, oh my God, what a nightmare. Just get a weld table, the kind with the holes in it so that you can use the fixturing tools that are going to make your life easier down the road. It's all fun and games when you're working with mild steel and then you get a stainless project that isn't magnetic and you're like, well, this fucking sucks. So there are more than just magnets that work with those tables. You can get actual clamps, things that hold stuff down. It is a godsend. So you don't need the table right away, but if you are planning on doing a lot of stuff like this, just make your life easier. Get a table. From anybody, um, and just going to make a ton of difference. Other things you're going to need. You're going to need a helmet. We're not going to go down a crazy rabbit hole. We kind of did that already two podcasts ago when I asked for your recommendations. So I will just say this: get a, get an auto darkening helmet. Um, for the longest time, I used a non auto darkening. I still have that non auto darkening helmet, and I still love it for certain things. But there's a lot of things on a bike. Again, those those times when you're laying down and you're trying to hold something and get a quick tack on it, there's just so many situations where an auto-darkening is is really handy. And don't worry, because everybody else is using an auto-darkening. Nobody's going to make fun of you and be like, oh, it's a cheater helmet. All those people are dead now. They died 100 years ago. Everybody uses auto-darkening. Don't sweat it. Uh, But do have... Here's... Okay. I'm going to take that back for one second. Do have... A passive lens around. And the reason I say that is because sometimes auto darkening helmets can have problems. I haven't had any with mine, but I know people who'd like, oh, the the sensor stopped working in my helmet and now I can't weld. Have a passive lens around that you can throw in there in an emergency. They're like five bucks at your local welding supply store. Get a shade 10 or 11 and just keep it somewhere in your toolbox. That way, if something goes wrong, you can still weld that day. How's that for a tip? <laughs> Next up, gas lens kit. This is huge. Gas lens is what they do is basically, we talked about how the argon's coming out of the TIG torch and it's flowing over the piece that you're working on. But if you ever used a sink like out in somebody's garage, like right, right, like a one of those industrial sinks where the water just fucking spits everywhere and it gets all over you and it fucking showers half the wall. And then you go inside and you turn your faucet on on your sink next to your stove and it comes out in a perfect, neat, orderly fashion. It's not because this, the water in your house was raised better and went to an Ivy League school. It's because there's a mesh filter inside that sink and there's no mesh filter in the one that's out in your garage. The gas lens situation is exactly the same thing. It puts a mesh filter inside your TIG torch so that when the argon comes out, instead of blasting out in all different directions and maybe shielding the puddle and maybe not, depending on where it's pointing, you get a nice, consistent flow of argon that puddles over the entire weld area. So a gas lens kit, you do not have to spend a lot of money on. Um, I just was messaging... Masibra on Instagram shout out to him and I sent him over a link it was like 18 bucks for a stubby gas lens kit right so that's like three different diameters uh, 045 116 and 332 so it's three of the gas lenses a bunch of the stubby little cups which is gonna which was gonna be one of my next thing the the cups Those cups can be huge. They're like three inches long on the stock torches. Nobody, nobody uses these cups. I don't know why welding companies even ship them. Like it doesn't even make any sense. The first thing everybody does is they take that off and they put a stubby cup on there. It's about an inch long um, and that little pink cup. It works for everything. That and a gas lens will cost you about 18 bucks on Amazon, and you'll probably have it. I've had mine for like three years. It's crazy. Um, in the future, when you decide, hey, I, I end up using only 332 tungstens, buy a five pack for 10 bucks on Amazon. And if you want the link, shoot me a message. I'll send you the link I'll, to the, exactly the ones I'm using here in my garage. It was like 10 bucks for a five pack. Um and the only reason you you'd want to have buy just the lenses is because I found out that I was only using like three the the three thirty two diameter tungstens, and the pack the that original pack that came with all the cups and the gas lenses had three different diameters so once you burn one up, you use it for a couple of years and it's just junk uh you need another one so at that point you don't need to buy the whole kit again just buy a bunch of the, the gas lenses um And they also, that kit also comes with a stubby back cap. So on the the stock torch, you'll get like a five fucking inch long back to your TIG torch. Again, nobody, nobody uses these things. I don't understand it. They just like, somebody in the fucking supply chain is like, just keep building them. Keep fucking building them. And then everyone just gets it, unwraps it throws it in the trash and puts a stubby on and they think they think to themselves, why do you keep fucking putting these on to, on machines? It, it just literally makes no sense. You pay all that money and that's part of what you're paying for. So it's kind of frustrating. The companies aren't actually taking stock of it. And the worst part is they make the stubbies too. So it's like, well, the, what the fuck are you doing? Just put the stubby in the box and we'd be good to go. But they don't. So get the gas lens kit comes with the stubby back caps And basically that, those two things coupled with a flex head will let you get everywhere inside the frame tubing that you need in order to do a hardtail. Because that's like, especially when you're talking about up in the seat post area where the two frame rails meet up with the seat post in that like triangular part right in front of the seat. That can be really difficult to get down into if you don't have a gas lens because the gas lens lets you stick your tungsten out a little further than you could otherwise because you get such good gas coverage. And it's about the only way you're gonna get down into those areas of the frame that you really need to get weld into. Um, Let's see. And we're almost done with the accessories here. We'll touch briefly on the fillers because I realize I'm running long, uh, a lot longer than I thought I would. And we'll touch briefly on the filler rods you need. And we'll skip over the, the projects and we'll get right into your, your questions because I think we're going to be a little pressed for time. So the last things are the accessories, a wire brush is a good thing to have on hand because sometimes if you weld something, running a wire brush over it before you do another pass can really help that next pass go on cleaner. And then lastly, we didn't touch too much on this, but you will need tungsten and in my opinion, you should get a tungsten sharpener. Um, right now, Eastwood has a sale on theirs, which is like the most affordable one. It's a hundred bucks, free shipping, smoking deal. You'll have this thing forever, too. What that does is it lets you get a consistent grind on your tungsten every time. Instead of fucking around with like a coarse stone that was on your dad's bench grinder that he gave to you that fucking wobbles or has like a bunch of three different tracks in it that get all squirrely as the disc spins around. Just don't bother trying it that way. You're going to get inconsistent results and you're going to drive yourself nuts. Get a tungsten grinder, sharpen your tungstens consistently, and you will be good to go. All right, filler wires. We're almost there. This is almost everything you need. And I know it seems like a bunch of stuff, and it is a bunch of stuff, but once you have all of this together, you will be able to coast on this setup for years. So just remind yourself, even though it seems like a lot of upfront things, you're not gonna, this is going to be autopilot for you once you get all this stuff. You're not going to have to struggle no matter what you need to weld, you're going to have the stuff you need and it's going to be fucking easy mode. So it's worth getting set up right initially. Filler wire. If you're just doing mild steel and you're not doing anything else, all you need is ER70 S2. Some, uh, some welding supply shops, this is part is unfortunately another one of these confusing things. Some of them sell ER70 S6. For all intents and purposes, they're exactly the same, whether it's S2 or S6. They have different silicon contents. Do you care? Nope. Definitely not. And unless you're a metallurgist, it's never going to matter to you. Any any motorcycle project you're doing, you could weld it with either of them. Whether it's ER70S2 or ER70S6. Whatever your local supply sells, they'll probably only sell one of the two. Just buy that one. It'll be fine. Get it in the one sixteenth diameter. That's my recommendation. It is... Handy to have 116th, you could do a frame with 116th. If you really want to do some very thin sheet metal, maybe also get 045. So they like they just kind of stop fractions at a certain point and then they just start calling it in, in metric. So after 16th, you just get into 045. Um, so both of those, you'll be good to go. If you're trying to do stainless, stainless is welded with 308. If you're you're talking about like your run-of-the-mill 304 stainless, 308, it's also labeled 308L. Either one of those will be good to go for all of your stainless projects. If you're welding 316 stainless specifically and, and you were doing some kind of code job where you absolutely needed to keep that 316 pure, you can get 316 rod but you, you don't need it for your 304. Other rods you might wanna have on hand, 4043. For all intents and purpose, this is gonna be your aluminum rod. This is gonna be whatever you're doing that's aluminum. I find 4043 melts in way better. Uh, there's another rod for parts that are getting anodized. 4043 does not work for anodized parts, but how often are you anodizing parts that you're making in your garage? Probably not that often. So 4043 in the one sixteenth diameter. If you are anodizing parts, that's some cool shit. And you would use 5356 for aluminum. But I don't like 5356 all that much for everything else. Um, and I don't anodize any parts. So for me, it's 4043 pretty much all the way. Next up is if you're if you need to weld stainless to mild. So say you're trying to say you've got like a mild steel tail light mount, and you want to weld it onto your stainless steel sissy bar, you would use 309. 309 is the rod for welding mild to stainless. It's kind of a niche thing. You probably won't need this. Um, I can't think of too many situations where you would where you would be doing that, but. If you're trying to set yourself up for the future and you're at the welding supply store and they have a small pack of 309, not a bad thing to have on hand if somebody comes over and decides uh, they have a strange project that they want to ask you about. Next up, and the last one here, because I know we're throwing a bunch of numbers at you. We'll do a quick recap at the end of this just so you can write them all down again if you missed it. The last thing is silicon bronze. Silicon bronze is for brazing. Brazing is basically where you are using your TIG torch, but you don't melt the base metal. You're just melting the silicon bronze onto the base metal. So silicon bronze is handy for a bunch of different things. One, welding dissimilar. Two, welding things that actually could not be welded together. I had somebody come to me one time. They wanted, instead of welding a... A, a steel bung, a threaded bung into a gas tank. They actually wanted me to weld the petcock, the brass petcock into the gas tank. It's a oddball thing, but if you want it, sh- so it shall be done. And the way you do that is with silicon bronze, you braze it in there so you can braze the brass into the stainless, or excuse me, into the steel of the gas tank. And It'll be as strong or nearly as strong as a weld, certainly strong enough for what it needs to do. Um, And it also has a really cool gold color, especially if you hit it with a flap disc afterwards, it turns like a very bright, shiny gold and it looks super fucking cool. So having silicon bronze in the one sixteenth diameter is a great thing to keep on hand for those weird projects. Unfortunately, a lot of places only stock it in 332, which sucks because the unfortunate thing is you not When you're brazing, you don't want to melt that base metal. And when you have 332 silicon bronze, it takes a lot of heat to melt it. Usually, too much heat because then you end up melting the base metal. So when it comes to brazing, you always want thinner than you think you might need. Um, because otherwise, you're going to have to put too much heat in. So, to recap all those, for mild steel... ER-70-S2 or ER-70-S6. Jot those down. For stainless, 308 or if you're working with 316 stainless, 316 rod. If you're welding dissimilar metals like stainless and mild together, you want 309. If you are welding aluminum, you want 4043. And then lastly, you want some silicon bronze for putting random metals together. Alright so with all of that said, I think we are ready at this point to jump into your questions because at the end of the day this is supposed to be a segment to help you get started so we want to make sure we're tackling everything that you want to know. So. Let's see. First one comes from Via Del Muerte Customs. It says, tips for TIG on tanks so that they stay sealed. I'm about to cut the tunnel out of mine to relocate it, and I'm scared of getting small leaks. This is a great question. When it comes to welding thinner metal, my tip would be use pulse if you have it. Set it around, like I said, 10 to 20 pulses per second. Put your Background amperage at 30% and put your peak amps on whatever you would typically weld it at. So for a gas tank, maybe I don't know between 60 and 80 amps. It's tough to say because they're all different thicknesses, but whatever thickness you would end up using. Actually, here's a great guide for that too. Uh, Whatever the metric thickness is of the metal you're welding that's about how many amps you would use so for example eighth inch is 0.125 on the metric side of things that would be welded at 125 amps there's a baseline um, but that's a good place to get your your peak set so yeah try putting the pulse on do your you know dab your way along and at the end Continue to move the torch, like when you're done, make your way off of that spot as you taper that pedal off. So, you know, back off the amps and don't just leave the torch stationary while you back off the amps. Move it along so you kind of get this like tail where the puddle gets smaller and smaller and smaller and gets like triangular. Um, and, And do that as you're tapering off because if you're gonna get a leak, that's where you're going to get your leak, is right where you stopped. So just be careful with that. And once you once the arc stops, leave the argon flowing on that spot. Don't pull the torch away as soon as you're done off on the foot pedal. Let's see. Arcadia Fabrications says, how much CFM do you use for back purging? Let's say for exhaust pipe. So This is a great question because I feel like a lot of the people here that are interested in TIG are eventually going to do exhaust pipe work. I do pretty much the exact thing that exhaust pipe work. I'm not building exhaust pipes where I work. We're building stuff for uh, the pharmaceutical industry. But we are doing 065 wall, inch and a half stainless steel, which is exactly what you would use for exhaust pipe. And here's where it gets a little gets a little tricky, right? Because when you're at work and you're using a giant argon vat and you don't care how much you use, I usually run it at 20 um, and it runs beautiful. 20 usually puts it uh, right where it needs to be. It's perfectly flat on the outside and perfectly flat on the inside. Um, and also, the, all the welds that we're doing there our butt joints just like it would be on exhaust pipe and you don't need to use filler wire on them you can if you want but you can easily get full penetration and get a nice even you can even get a a slight uh convex bead on the top without using filler but if you want to beef it up for whatever reason and add the filler to it that's fine too uh and i would run it at home i'd say 15 um You could probably get away with 10, though, if you really restrict it out the back end. So for anybody that's interested in doing this, when you are back purging an exhaust, uh, you need to plumb it in one side. So basically you need to take, uh, if you don't have purge plugs, which you're probably not going to have if if you're working just out of your garage and doing this on occasion, you can just take uh, masking tape and tape one end of that hose because you bought the dual flow regulator, right? Right? So that this would be easy and you can control how much CFH you're putting through it. This is the reason why you buy the dual flow because otherwise you don't get to pick how much CFH goes in there. Um, So tape one end of the purge line into one end of the pipe and then on the other side of the pipe, tape it shut and poke a tiny little hole in it. You can use your 332 tungsten, stick it in through the tape and then wiggle it around a little bit to make the hole just a little bit bigger. And you should feel that purge blowing air into your hand when you put it in front of that little hole. If you try to do this, if you just put it put the hose in one side and you don't restrict the other side, you won't get any back pressure and it won't work. You're going to get a ton of color, excuse me, ton of color and it's going to look like shit on the inside. So, I would say between 10 and 15 if you restrict it properly on the other side. Okay, Joshua Clor. Clor Joshua Clor. I don't know how to say the last name. Uh, why do we use different length cups, long and stubby? The answer, the short answer, which we touched on earlier, is we don't. Nobody uses those trash-long cups. Throw it in the trash. There's nothing that you need to use it for. Get yourself a stubby gas lens kit, and you will never touch that longer cup again. Rob Angry says, could you explain this whole glass lens stuff? I don't get why it's different. Also, all the cup sizes confuse the hell out of me, too. Is there a happy medium size? Excellent question. The glass lens thing, the benefit of glass is that when you tap them, they break. And then you get to spend a whole bunch more money buying another one because you broke the last one, when in reality, they don't do anything different than a ceramic cup. Maybe the argument could be made that you could see a little better through the glass cup, but who's looking through the fucking cup? This is what I never understood about the whole glass cup thing is I'm looking at the tungsten. I think a lot of times people who are, who are buying glass cups are running too short of a stick out. So their tungsten is jammed like barely past or almost flush with the cup. And that's why they feel like they need this glass cup because they're like, well, I can't see the puddle because my tungsten is stuffed way up. Stick the tungsten out a quarter of an inch. I will, I will stick that fucking tungsten out half an inch sometimes. When you're running a gas lens in 20 CFH, you are blanketing that gas coverage everywhere. You don't need a glass cup. Get a ceramic cup. An 8 is your happy medium size. Um, if you have to get in somewhere tight, it can be handy to have like a 7 and a 6. Um, but I use an 8 at work. I've been, I haven't even taken it off in a year. It's been an entire year I've had it on there, and it works phenomenal. If you want to get like a specialty one, um, I will say, get the Michael Furick which is a M. Furick, F-U-R-I-C-K, on Instagram. He makes a Jazzy 10 and a 12 uh, cup. They are white ceramic. I would never buy the glass ones for the same reason. It's just way too fucking easy to break them, and... You should be running a stick out to where it shouldn't even matter. Um, Get yourself that jazzy 10. I think the the 12 is like if you're doing specialty stuff and you really need like crazy coverage. But the 10, the coverage on the 10 is fucking insane. And you can get the 10 right on Amazon for like 10 bucks or 15 bucks for a two pack, I think. Or maybe it's 20 for a two pack, but it's so much cheaper than the other ones. And it's very, very durable. So if you want to get a specialty cup, get a Jazzy Ten Furic cup, and then for everything else, use a stubby pink eight. Let's see, Joshua Clore says again. Oh, sneaking two questions in here, Josh. He says also, tips for doing your first hardtail. Yes, uh, tip would be get a jig. I like the. I have a Chop Source jig uh, that I that I love. It works great. Dirty bills also. Make some jigs if you want to grab one from them. Uh, and you can, so, okay, so you're asking for my tips. My tips are get the jig. People do it without the jig. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how well they do it. I just know that they've done it. Um, so I would, I would recommend getting the jig. And then I'd also say um, get an angle finder because the angle finders that are magnetic can sit on the frame rails to let you know that you have everything lined up the way that it needs to be. If you don't have an angle finder, another way you can measure is the most important thing is that those two axle plates are perfectly parallel with each other and are the same distance from the neck. So uh, another way to measure as you're going along to make sure things are staying in square is to tie a string around the neck of the frame jig um, because there's like a piece that sticks up out of the actual neck. Tie Tie a string around that and pull it back to the back of one of the axle plates and like put your fingernail on it where it hits the back of the axle plate and then leaving your fingernail on there and tension on the string move it over to the other axle plate and if when you Put it over on the other axle plate. If your fingernail lines right up with the back of that one, you know that you're the same distance on both axle plates. So those are two quick tips for you. Um, Steel city blacksmithing. Hang on. We need a little sit break here. Boy, your throat really gets dry when you don't have a co-host. This is fucking brutal. I don't know how people do this every day for the podcasts. Steel City Blacksmithing says what is the trick to TIG welding eighteen gauge steel? I got really good at burning huge holes in it, got pissed, and busted out the old faithful Hobart Mig. Oh Sacrilegious Also, do you have any experience with brazing on AC? If so, what setting if you what's the setting if you remember? I've only brazed on DC with good results on steel slash stainless brazed to hammerheads, but had trouble with cast iron brazing looking forward to this episode. Hey, I'm excited to hear that. All right, so let's take the second part of this question first. Cast iron brazing. So what what I've always heard, and I tried it once on a wood stove part that I needed to repair a crack in, and it worked great for me, is instead of silicon bronze, aluminum bronze is a great rod for it. And people like to do cast iron with AC instead of DC because you get a lot of that good cleaning action that we talked about when we talked about adjusting your balance, excuse me, adjusting your balance um, to help clean some of that, uh, in, in, except in this case, instead of the scum on the surface of the aluminum, you're actually cleaning some of the scum on the cast iron. So the difference though, between aluminum and cast iron is that it's a lot, you can really crank that electrode negative, high like 90 percent 85 90 percent electronegative which would usually if you were doing cast aluminum you would struggle with that it would be too much penetration not enough cleaning action but on the cast iron it seems to do just fine but if for some reason with whatever part you're working on that's cast that's giving you fits by trying to crank it that high you can back that off to like 75% electrode negative. So that'll give you a little bit more of the cleaning action. And that rod, that um, aluminum bronze rod, will should wet in really nicely as you're brazen with that. So the next part welding 18 gauge steel. Same thing I mentioned to the guy above. Uh, set your pulse on, put your pulse on like 10 to 20 pulses per second. Put your background amps low. Put it on 20% background amps if you have to. Because basically when you're changing your background amperage, you're just saying how cold is it going to get in between pulses. So if you're if too much heat is going into the part, you can do one of two things. You can back off on the foot pedal or if it's still blowing through, take your background amps and your main amps probably and drop them both down so that your peak is lower and your background is lower. And then from there, you're just going to do the same thing you would normally do. Come up on the pedal till you see the puddle start, and then slowly dab your way along. Uh, That's it. All right, Speedwolf says, what do you think is the most overrated and underrated tool slash settings slash features slash techniques that people think will make their welds look as good as Jesse James? Uh, Overrated? So I know I just said it for... This is going to be a weird one. The most overrated feature that makes people think their welds are going to look super good is pulse. People think that they're going to do what I said earlier, where like they're going to use the pulse feature and just dab once per pulse. And like that's how people get good, consistent looking weld puddles. But that really isn't. Usually, when you see like a really nice weld, the person just had it on direct current and they had their foot on a foot pedal and they just dabbed consistently. Um, so I think people think that Pulse is going to do something for them that it's not going to do. What it is going to do is what I just said a second ago. It's going to help you dissipate some of the heat so you don't blow holes and stuff. Um, Overrated tool. In a way, I guess you could say the overrated tool is the welder itself. People think that if they buy a Miller Dynasty you're going to be a fantastic welder and that could not be further from the truth. I've seen a lot of people fuck up a weld test with a really nice welder. Um, It's about the guy using the machine and how much you know about setting up the machine. Underrated technique. Here's one that I think is going to be really hard to describe but is one of the most valuable things I ever learned how to do um, when it comes to... I get a lot of repair work uh, cause I'm not like building products. So a lot of things are coming to me and they need to have simple job filling a hole, right? And a lot of times people will take a MIG and they'll just fucking squeeze that trigger. And they make this fucking monstrosity of a mountain that get like forms up over where the hole used to be. And then you have to spend 10 minutes grinding it out. What I love is with a TIG welder, think of way you normally add filler rod. Say you're right-handed. You're holding the TIG torch in your right hand and a filler rod in your left hand, and you're moving that torch to the left, and each time you make a little movement, you're doing a little dab in front of the puddle. Really cool technique I learned from watching the Welding, Welding Tips and Tricks YouTube channel was when you're filling a hole, like say you drill the hole in your frame or somebody else drilled a hole in your frame, that fucking previous owner, what a piece of shit, and you gotta fill this hole up, you can... Fill it up really easily by starting around the edge and instead of adding the filler in front of the direction you're traveling and like washing it, washing it into where you're going, you add the filler rod behind the tungsten. It's still hot right behind the tungsten. It's still enough for it to go in, but because you're moving away from where you just added the filler rod, instead of wetting down into the hole, it just freezes. Because the instant after you dab it, you're now moving away, it gets cold, and you leave this little mound. And what you do is you go around the entire hole, adding the filler behind the direction you're moving, and you get all these little mounds, and you just go and go and go and go, and then the hole gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Before you know it, you've met in the middle, and now your hole is filled, and it's pretty much dead even. Really handy. I use it all the time. I never heard anybody else talk about it except for obviously Jody on the welding tips and tricks channel because that's where I saw it. I did not invent this technique. But super super handy. And filling holes is something we have to do all the time. Uh let's see. Ray's Hell Daily says seeing as I'm currently working on a serious career change, thanks again for the insight, Grease. What is the best economical tig machine to start? I should have read the whole <laughs> I should have read this whole question. We did talk at length about this already, but the most economical one is the AHP Alpha Tig, whatever they're on now, 201 XD or 200 uh, 2 something. It's the only one they're selling on their website. It's 700 bucks. It is the best deal in tig welding. If somebody sends you a different one that's cheaper, Don't fall for it. Just get that one. Uh, Let's see. Fart Degree says, do you prefer a 120 volt or 220 volt machine for personal use? This is an excellent... I'm actually glad that you mentioned this because I only touched on this briefly when I was talking about the difference between that Miller and the Everlast portable machines. All of the machines that I mentioned... Besides maybe the Dynasty, I don't know if the Dynasty... No, it does come with the dual voltage plugs. All of these machines are dual voltage. And if you're buying a machine in 2021, it should be dual voltage. Um, There's no reason why it can't be a 120 and a 220. All the modern inverters are. Uh, You don't want to be limited to one or the other, in my opinion. There's too many options. We live in the golden age of welding. There's too many options to be... Tying yourself down to a monotonous relationship with a 220 volt outlet when you could easily have a dual voltage machine and all of these are. Uh, But I prefer, I mean, if I'm at my house, you get better, you get more amperage out of a 220. So when I'm working with my AHP at home, I would never plug it into 110. You know what I mean? Because I have a 220 outlet. It's cool that that I could if I had to take it somewhere. But I would always rather be plugged in on 220. Um, also, I would never buy a 120 only machine. If the machine that you're looking at doesn't do 220, do not buy it. Hands down. There's absolutely no reason. There's so many good affordable machines that are dual voltage to limit yourself to a 120. Ugh. Do not buy any machine that doesn't have a 220. Um capability. Boring Garage says, been practicing my TIG lately and just doing fusion welds. Fucking love it. Uh, and I do just fine, but introduced rod and I can't seem to get it down smoothly. Not sure why. Any tips or tricks would be super helpful. More likely than not, it's one of two things. One, either your torch angle is weird as fuck. Like if you, if you're really, here's something that people do a lot of times. They think that like the appropriate angle is about 15 degrees uh, canted with the point of your tungsten going toward the direction you're moving. So it's a slight angle. And what a lot of people do is they, they cock it at like 45 degrees. So you have this very extreme tungsten angle. And then they go to introduce the rod. And because they're, they're pointing the heat of that TIG torch at 45 degrees in that direction... So much heat is going sideways that it balls their tungsten. Or excuse me, not the tungsten. It balls the electrode, that you're the filler wire that you're trying to introduce. So if you ever have that problem where you're trying to add filler and it seems like the filler rod is melting before you can even get it over to the puddle, your torch angle is too steep. Point it more at the puddle and less forward of the puddle. The other thing is that people sometimes in the beginning and this is everybody by the way i'm not trying to say that like i never had this problem because i absolutely did in the beginning it can be hard to feed the filler rod smoothly and sometimes when you're like erratic with the way that you're dabbing the filler rod in there it can make it seem really inconsistent so the best way to practice this is to take a piece of filler rod and focus on feeding it with your fingers um your best bet, because you're only getting this information from an audio podcast, I can't give you the video. So just go on YouTube and and look up uh, feeding TIG wire. And they'll show you the technique to, to kind of slide it through your fingers and feed it without moving your arm. You're just moving your fingers. That's a technique that you have to learn. Um, a lot of people are like, no, I'll just hold it really far back. And I'll just like dab, 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 dab. And then they're holding it like two feet back because they have a long joint to do and it's wobbling like a motherfucker. It's like, no, just learn to feed it through your gloves, through your fingers without moving your arm. If you're holding one spot on the filler wire only and you're not feeding it, uh, you there's a lot of you can get away with it for a long time, but you're eventually going to come to a spot where it's just not going to be feasible. And you're going to wish that you spent time practicing. So you, you can just sit there on the couch while you're watching TV, feed the filler rod. When you get to the end, flip it around, feed the filler rod. It'll become so second nature that you won't even think about it after a certain point. So those are the two best tips. For, for more than that, if you want to slide in the DMs, we can, uh, you can tell me exactly what's happening. And with a little more information, I'm sure we can dial it in. Let's see. Lane Gunner says, how do I find the sweet spot of getting a good weld pool without blowing through my metal completely? I feel like every time I get a puddle big enough to start adding filler rod, I blow right through the metal not long after. Tips for heat regulation, I guess, is what I'm asking for. Well, listeners, do you want to give this man some tips on heat regulation? Let me hear you say it. Run that motherfucking pulser. And if you don't have the pulser, what you can do is try to... So for, let, me, let me back up here. When you're using your foot pedal, it's obviously, it's called a potentiometer, which is basically starts at zero. And if you have the, the foot pedal maxed all the way down, it goes to whatever your machine is set to. So if you're having problems with burning through stuff and you're putting too much heat into it, a good way to fix that problem is maybe you have a heavy foot. Maybe instead of having that machine set to 100 amps, and you only really need about 50 amps, turn that amperage down to 50 so that if you come in hot and heavy with that initial pedal press, instead of it hitting 50 amps when you're halfway through the pedal stroke, it'll be at 25 when you're halfway through the pedal stroke. Turn your amps down so that it's harder for you to give it too much pedal and burn right through the material. All right, Shake and fry chopper says the thing that's been giving me hell with TIG welding has been fixturing and getting my parts held down in workable positions. would love to hear what you use to hold down your odd shaped parts on a flat surface. We need a sip of the Guinness for this one. Oh, it's fantastic. (sighs) These are two greatest things. Delicious cold beer and talking about welding. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a dream night for your boy. All right, next up is uh, holding down the odd shaped parts. So, I talked before about how important it is to have a good welding table. This is kind of why that part can't be overstated enough because there are a lot that can be done without it. A simple, basic metal table will let you use strong hand tools, magnets, which I absolutely recommend. Um, Harley's and headaches actually commented on that and said, I've had good luck using the strong hand tools, magnetic V pads. Um, the ones I like are these little, they're adjustable magnets. So like you can stick one end to your table and it's, and then you've got this one end stuck and you can flex the other end, which also has a magnet, but it's still rigid enough that it'll hold some weight. So for example, When I'm doing a sight gauge on a gas tank, and you've got this fucking round gas tank rolling around on your table, I take four of these magnets, I stick them all onto the table, and then I bend all the ends inward, you know, like 15 or 20 degrees, and I just place the round tank down onto the magnets. And now all of these magnets are compensating because they can all move independently, and they're just like, finding a way to where they all hit the tank now, and now the tank is held solid. Um, you could do that without a fixturing table, You could, uh, but you do need your table to be metal. Or you need like a metal sheet on your table, because the magnets need something to stick to. Uh, better than that is the strong, well, I, I shouldn't say better. In conjunction with that, Stronghand Tools also makes these uh, slotted, basically clamps, that go down into your... They slide down into those slots of the table and you can pivot them left and right and then you can twist like a... It's got that same like bar style that a C-clamp has where you would twist that thing and then the little pad comes down onto the piece. I would say like four of those and four of the magnets and then a couple of the 90 degree Harbor Freight Red magnets in each size. That'll get you pretty well in the ballpark for most projects that you're going to be working on to keep them held flat. Oh, and the other thing, actually, Rick, you're going to love this one because as a as a, a connoisseur of the drag around shop vise, what I would recommend is a table vise. Um, the small kind is probably like four inches by eight inches and put that on your weld table because that's really handy for I mean, I use one of those at work all the fucking time for all these like weird, and I do some weird fucking angles, um, very obscure, long, strangely shaped parts. And sometimes the best way to get it held down is to put the magnets on one side. And then on the other side, I need to know that the piece is at 90. So it's really cool to have a vice on the other side, because once I clamp it into the jaws... At an angle, I know that that angle can't twist. So you've got your ninety on one end, and then you've got your magnets on the other end to kind of figure out how you're going to fixture the other side. Um, and if, if I'll send you, if if there's a specific thing you're trying to fixture, send me a, a DM, and we will get it sorted out. All right, Herman Munster says someone's going to get a radiation burn because I pictured I sent a picture of me welding in a T-shirt. Well, I fucking didn't, bud. Uh, Actually, that's a lie. I get radiation burn very easily. You should definitely wear sleeves. Um, But who's got fucking time for sleeves? Sometimes you're just ripping a weld. You just got to let it go. Uh, Garage Dodge says, Blue tungsten with an Everlast inverter machine, welding aluminum, tungsten doesn't ball up. All right. So one thing that's important here. First off, I love the blue tungsten, 2% lanthanated. We didn't touch on that. I can't believe I missed that. When you buy that tungsten, get a either 332 or 116 diameter, 2% lanthanated. It works for everything. It's not radioactive uh, like thoriated is. You would be well served to use that tungsten for everything, including aluminum. So the balling of the tungsten... Is also I, I should say this. It's not the end of the world if your tungsten doesn't ball up. It doesn't have to. Um, we used a lot of E3 tungsten and some at, toward the end, two uh, percent lanthanated because I brought some in when I was at the trailer place where I did all aluminum. And sometimes the aluminum would ball the tungsten. Sometimes it wouldn't. Uh, kind of depended on how much amperage I was using at the time. And that's what I was going to ask you here. You didn't mention how much amps you're using, but I will say once you get to the ragged edge of the amperage that your diameter tungsten is rated for, which most people that are doing 200 amps are using 332, but 332 is actually a little light for that. You probably should be using 1 8th, um if you were way up there in the amperages. And if you're welding aluminum, you're almost always dealing with higher amperages because aluminum takes more amps in order to weld it. Uh, Don't get too wrapped up in whether it balls up or not. I've laid some pretty fucking nice looking beads on a lot of stuff with tungsten that kind of looked a little ragged. Um, If you're getting a wandering arc, what you can try is, again, make sure you're using the right diameter tungsten for this. Two, don't use a gas lens for aluminum. Um, This is something not a lot of people know because they're they're just so used to using a gas lens for, for steel and stainless. It sucks on aluminum. For whatever reason, it just like the aluminum wants to spatter and you will clog up your gas lens and it'll run like shit. I always went back to regular lenses um, when I was doing aluminum and I had much better luck with it. Um, So there's that. There is make sure that you're not running on the ragged edge of the diameter of your tungsten. And the last one is, yeah, when you grind it. Do a a good grind to a nice sharp point and then blunt the point. Don't grind like a flat grind on it. Actually put, put the angle on it, but then blunt that point because sometimes that point can cause it to split and splinter. And if you dull it, like just tap it into whatever you're using to grind the tungsten initially, blunt that point and then go back to it and see if it runs any better for you. And if not, shoot me a DM and we will try to figure it out. Oh, the other thing, too, is you can turn the cleaning action up. So if you turn the electrode negative, usually, like I said, most domestic machines, they measure the balance in percent electrode negative. So if you want to turn the cleaning action up, you'd be turning that setting down so that the positive goes up. So instead of running it at, at say, 70%, turn that down to 60% or 50%. And when you get into that heavy cleaning action, that's what's going to help to ball the tungsten. Some people will turn that really low, they'll drop the the percent negative down to like 30 just to ball the tungsten. You don't have to do that. It's silly. I don't know why people do that. It welds fine without it, so don't sweat that too much. Iron trash rat. Do you have to preheat the materials to be welded and why? Also, when are you going to change the name of this podcast to the Low Life Welding Podcast and just be done with it? Well, fucking right now seems about as good a time as any if we were going to make that change. And as far as preheating materials, the only ones that you really have to preheat is like if you were doing super, super thick stuff. Um, like when I, was doing at the, when I was at the sprinkler place, we would do some flanges that were like an inch thick. So super fucking chunky steel, uh, those are handy to preheat, tack it first and then preheat it because um, you've got to make sure you've got your alignment and it's hard to align something when it's fucking scalding hot and you have to touch it with your hands. So super thick stuff is the only stuff you would preheat and I mean, you could also preheat. Yeah, no, I wouldn't even do it with that. Um, In a different way, cast aluminum needs to be preheated, but not necessarily with a torch. Uh, You could do it with a torch, but what I would recommend is when you have cast aluminum that needs like a case, we talked earlier about welding on a case that's like dirty and and gross and has oil all over it, Um, obviously wipe it down with acetone to get as much off as as you possibly can before you start, but turn your cleaning action up on your AC balance Turn your frequency down on your AC frequency and just run the torch over the area that you're about to weld on a low amperage and kind of just bring it up. Because when you start to weld on cast aluminum, it's going to turn like a white oxide color. And that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to essentially preheat this material and cook out all the impurities before you start adding filler rod. That's where a lot of people go wrong with cast aluminums. They immediately go full bore on the pedal and they try to just jam filler rod in there. But there's still so much porosity and junk and grime deep down in there that they haven't gotten rid of yet. And they get this terrible looking weld and you get this black pepper that floats in the puddle. Um, And that is not what you want. Um, some degree is, is unavoidable. You're probably going to get a little bit of black, but you don't, you'll know if it's like swirling around in there and it'll like literally jump up to your tungsten and glom onto it and create this like giant ball. um, That's super fucking hard to get off your tungsten. You basically have to cut it off. So you don't want that. So instead what you do is you crank, crank the cleaning action up and you run it down that joint and cook out all that shit And just slowly start to bring it from where it's that white haze into a silver puddle. And as soon as you start to see that puddle starting to form, if you're not seeing black stuff in it, that part's good. Move on to the next part. Cook that section out. And then as soon as that puddle can like form and be silver and be clean, move on to the next section. You do the whole joint like that. And then you come back once you've cooked all the impurities out. And then you can lay the actual filler rod and you're going to have a way better time of it. Let's see. Death Day Mike, oh, Jesus Christ, I'm going to have to move quicker through these. Death Day Mike says, tips and tricks for vertical up for TIG and MIG. I can't help you with the MIG. Uh, Why does aluminum filler rod ball up? I can't seem to get the aluminum to pool and start laying... Oh, this is like serendipitous. This came right after. Oh, Death Day Mike, this is the one we were talking about. Okay, so I did... So he says... I can't seem to get the aluminum to pool and start laying beads. I have a Dynasty 400 at work and I cannot get the thicker aluminum pieces to weld. I have that machine on full blast with one eighth tungsten green and it just balls the tungsten and burns it. Any help would be awesome. So me and Mike went back and forth on this. We talked about a bunch of different things. The first is that I'm not a fan of green tungsten at all. Big fan of blue, 2% lanthanated. He also said he had red, not in this post, but we talked separately. Said he had red, which is thoriated. Uh, thoriated is better for aluminum than green would be. The other thing is that you really need a preheat. Um, he was doing some some chunky boy stuff there, and a preheat would help a ton, as well as the other the other things we mentioned earlier crank up the percent negative, right? Now you've got a thick, thick piece. You don't need the cleaning action because it's not cast. You've just got these big aluminum pieces that you need to penetrate on. So you want that electrode negative bumped up and you want that frequency bumped down. 60 hertz, say, for the frequency. And then around probably 80% electrode negative. All righty. Semen I-94, motherfucking Memphis, says, Grease, what are your favorite things to weld? Do you enjoy more of a challenge, or do you like to stick to what you know and bang out those types of projects? So, favorite things to weld are all made of stainless. I love, love, love stainless. It is the most enjoyable thing to weld. It's always pretty clean, at least compared to mild. You're not dealing with like tons of mill scale and shittiness. It welds beautiful rainbow colors and it's just so fun. I do 100% stainless at work right now and I'm very fortunate to be where I'm at. Um, As far as things I know versus things that are a challenge... Uh, this is kind of a cop out here, but I'm going to say challenges that I know. I have a couple projects at work that everybody hates working on because it, because they're like really tricky and kind of tedious to do. But I know it, and I've done it, and it's hard to do. But I know what I'm doing, and that's my favorite kind of thing to do. Things that are that are challenging that not everybody can do that take a lot of focus and energy. But I I understand them. So, Dive Bar Custom says, any benefits to using glass TIG cups other than seeing the arc better? Ho, <laughs> oh, ho, ho! I already shit on those already, so we'll just jump right along. Uh, the Tin Man 1393 says, tips on TIG and cast aluminum. I'm working on a mini bike cylinder head to help raise compression and maintain plenty of valve lift for big cams, and this shit sucks dick to TIG. Yes, sir, it does. Um, like we said before, get in there with the, Acetone, get in there with a wire brush, and then crank up that percent electrode positive. Uh, If you tell me what machine you're working on, like I said, the domestic and the imports, it's reversed. It's super confusing. So I don't want to tell you to turn your dial up or turn your dial down because it depends on what machine you're working on. Um, Tell me what machine, slide in the DMs, we'll get you hooked up. And then do that thing I just mentioned do the cooking. You have to cook all those impurities out. Uh, before you try to get in there and just lay wire down. Hardlys and Headaches it says, I've, I've outgrown my Lincoln MIG 130. I'm super stoked to hear this, which is pretty much only good for light metals and tacking. Would you have recommendations on a good MIG TIG welder? I've never TIG welded, but I would like to learn. MIG TIG, um, that Rebel 215 is going to do MIG, TIG, and stick. So that would probably be the recommendation. Another MIG TIG is the Miller Matic 220 AC-DC. That's a pretty handy one that does stick MIG and TIG. Um, I think, and the price on that one is right around the same. I think it's right around 2.5K for the Miller Matic 220 AC-DC. And that's another one. It's got the touchscreen. It's got the, like, oh, I'll help you if you put the wrong parameters in. Um, those are probably your two best options. But, like I said, my I my opinion on the multiprocessors, take it with a grain of salt because they're not machines I've worked with a lot personally. Um, I've always worked with dedicated tig machines or or stick, you know, stick welded with Tig machines, because I should mention that too. Stick welding is a super simple process. You don't need to buy a dedicated stick machine. A TIG welder that does stick is fine. Um, it's not that it's not that complicated, uh, unless you're going to run sixty ten stick rod, in which case you're going to need uh, a setting that runs sixty ten. Some machines won't run it. It's a cellulose rod. It's like a. Recycled paper based thing, but we here in America we use 6010. Motherfucking America, we use 6010 for pipeline code work 6010 and 7018. So, if you're a guy that's doing that, it might matter to you that you have a stick welding machine that does 6010. My little miller that has almost no features does have that feature, so you could weld pipe with that thing. Pretty cool. Um, but other than that, yeah those are the two recommendations for a mig tig whole shot 1955 says how do you weld aluminum to steel you do not they don't get welded together and they don't get brazed together uh, fish tank whiskey says i really want to learn to tig but i'm afraid i'll fail proving my father was right and i'll never amount to anything <laughs> It actually says I'll never amore to anything because he was hammered when we wrote this, but that's okay. I'm working my way toward that right now with these Guinnesses. Uh, AJ Farrick says, is the old saying true? Welding is for Lincoln and Miller is for drinking. Fuck that saying. I am fucking team blue all the way through and through. Never been a big fan of Lincoln. Uh, I will say their SA200, their red face um, generator welders. There's a lot of pipeline guys that really like their Lincoln Um, generator welders. But that's not what you're buying. So unless you're buying that, I would go Miller. Uh, Terminal Soul. If TIG is the fly fishing of welding, what does that make MIG and STICK? STICK is the salt of the earth welding. I have a lot of respect for STICK. Uh, Most of America, I feel like, is put together with STICK 7018, You could weld the whole world with 7018. And the thing I love about stick is it's so portable. I could take that little Miller machine with no gas cylinder and just go weld some very, very thick stuff that you just could not, that would take endless amounts of time and you would need 220 to weld with MIG. It's just crazy. Even with that Miller... Plugged in, so on stick, I know I said on TIG, it pulls 130 amps off a regular household outlet. On stick, it pulls 90 amps, but 90 amps will run a 332 diameter 7018 stick rod, and that's what we used to use when I was in the union doing structural steel plate tests at the union hall, was 332 7018, and my little miller can run that off of a household outlet. I think that is super fucking cool um, stick welding is salt of the earth. MIG welding is terrible. Uh, Nathan flight tattoos says, how sketchy is it to build your own crazy Frank fender that you're going to run your old lady on? There's very little aftermarket out there for Kawasaki VN 800s. I think that's some kind of shadow and it'll need to be custom fabricated one way or another. I don't think that's sketchy at all. Um, I would buy the fender, from somebody, I would buy a pre-made fender and then I would build your like crazy Frank section for it. Uh, But the crazy Frank section is not going to be where the structure of the fender comes from. Make sure you have really good struts. If you're using struts or if you're doing a sissy bar mount, make sure it's mounted securely. If you want to shoot me a DM with what you have planned for that, I could tell you whether I feel like it's solid or not. Uh, But as far as the crazy Frank portion, I would just use some 16 gauge. Use something thick. If you're worried that it's going to flex or bend or not be strong enough, 16 gauge is pretty fucking chunky, but it's still thin enough that you can bend it and put an angle on it with uh, basic stuff at your house. John Harley-Davidson. Says, I don't understand why people like TIG so much. It's just too tedious in most applications when it's not necessary. I hate this question. uh, So we're going to skip over it. Um, Let's see. Well, the answer is because details do matter. And when you're doing something that you want to make sure you have (laughs) penetration on, you don't want to take the chance that you lay a cold MIG bead that you think penetrated it when really it didn't, when if you were TIGging it, you'd be able to watch that metal float down into that joint and know for a fact you got in there. Um, I'm just busting your balls a little bit, but also kind of not. TIG is super important. Uh, Let's see. Flandagram says, when welding parts that require (laughs) purging... (laughs) Got to get past that last one. (laughs) You cut me deep. (laughs) Flandogram says when welding parts that require purging, what pressure are you putting inside the piece? So I mentioned this earlier. Make sure, as important as the pressure, I would say more important than the pressure you're putting in the piece, is that you are restricting it on the other end. And the amount that you restrict it kind of plays into how much you put in there. And what I mean by that is like if you put a hole that's a quarter inch at the end of your purge, you're going to have to pump 20 CFH just to get that thing up to pressure. If you're going to put that hole nice and tiny then you're not, not going to have to put as much through. I think you can get by with as little as 10. At work I run 20 on almost everything but I'm not paying for that gas. If I was paying for the gas I'd probably do happy medium. 15. Um, and, and you know what? Do one weld. You know, Run it at, if you want to try it at 15. Take it out see if it looks good. And then run another one at 10. And if the 10, if you're starting to see color, no if you're doing an exhaust, um, no problem with color. Uh, I run 20 at work because we cannot have anything but bright, shiny silver and full penetration on everything we do at work. So I don't take any chances. I run that bitch at 20, and it comes out bright and shiny every time. At home, as long as it's not going to sugar... It doesn't really matter if it if it's purple on the inside. It's an exhaust pipe. It's going to look disgusting anyway. It's going to be covered in soot. So I wouldn't get too too precious about it when it comes to an exhaust. But if you if what you're doing is like for a brewery and someone and it's sanitary, yeah, there better be no color on the inside of that. I don't think you're building a brewery at your home though. So probably you'll be fine with ten. Last year's potato says TIG brazing. Got any insight on the process? Are there special tungsten requirements or special braised rod? Yes, there are. Uh, silicon bronze is the one I mentioned in the beginning. It's probably the handiest to have. Uh, that's the one I use to do the brass to steel. Um, any insight on the process? So another thing that I didn't mention about the process of TIG brazing is similar to the way that you might not want to, rather that you might want to use pulse to keep from putting too much heat into thin metal. You remember the brazing is about melting the brazing rod, but not the base metal. So pulse is kind of handy for this. This is another situation where you might consider using 10 to 20 pulses per second in order to keep some of the heat out of the base metal, but still put that heat into the braze rod. So that's another little trick. If you find that you're like, you can't stop melting the base metal, turn your pulser on, put your background amps really low, and that can kind of help you to avoid from melting the base metal. The problem is when you, when you melt the base metal, you then pull that into the silicon bronze braze metal, and they're not meant to go together. So then you end up getting this like gross-looking gray puddle, and that's not what you want. And it's not stronger either. It's just worse. So make sure you're not melting that base metal. Harleys and Handrails says, fix your table or frame jig if you're welding hardtails. Also, any tips on custom exhaust, how to avoid shrinking and warping on pie cuts in other joints? This is an excellent question. So uh, frame jig for welding hardtails, absolutely. I will say, when I did... A friend of mine's hardtail that came as a builder's kit. I I this is the first time I bought like a builder's kit. Well he bought it and he brought it over. I thought he just bought the whole hardtail. And I had to actually assemble like the seat post that goes through the um the hardtail itself. Obviously I have a I have a weld table and I have a frame jig. Um and for that job I actually needed both. Because when you're just putting together a builder's kit, you don't have a there's no frame yet. There's no frame to uh, to attach it to. You have to put the parts together first. So in that situation, a frame jig is not going to do you any good. So I really recommend having both, but um, I would never do it without, oh, you can't even really say one or the other for that situation. But let's say this, if you're buying the hardtail pre-made, um, just get the frame jig. And most of the time, too, I even as a fabricator, I'll say this, most of the time, the people who are selling the builder's kits are the ones that are tooled up to put them together anyway, and for the, like, the small, like, $50 charge that it takes for them to put it together, it sometimes it comes down to what's your time worth, you know what I mean? If you're going to, like, have to do all this extra, like, stuff to try to find a way to fixture it and set it up all together, and you're going to spend a whole day down there doing it, I think your day's worth 50 bucks. Uh Calibraga says, this is a new person. Welcome to the show. Says, what is a good welder for a first time? Oh, fuck. I should have read this again ahead of time. Uh, We pretty much covered all that. Any tips for a beginning welder starting to chop? Um, That's pretty much the whole episode. Quat1323 says, TIG welders are scared of that slag burn. Change my mind. Listen, I haven't had that slag burn in a long time. And I can't say that I miss it one bit. I fucking love it over here. So next we've got, or no, lastly, we made it to the end, people. We've got the creature who said, why do the guys in my shop get all weird when somebody talks about inadequate penetration? What a perfect one to end on. (laughs) You got to get that good penetration or you're just going to get laughed at. These are the rules. All right, guys, we made it to the end. And before we get too much further along here and and do a full recap of all this, let's just take a quick second to thank some of the people who make this show possible. First up, we got Deadbeat Customs out there in Tewksbury, Massachusetts at the new shop. Actually, tonight, while I'm recording this on Thursday night, because we were fucking late to the game this week, they're doing their bike night down in Lawrence, and they're doing it Same monthly bike night that they were doing up here in Londonderry is now down in Lawrence. So make sure you check out Deadbeat Customs on Instagram so you can get the date for the next one. Next up, we got Hypnic Jerk Customs out of Sydney, Australia. Making some of the dopest taillights, headlights, indicator lights, jockey shifts, points, covers, and more. This guy's got a little bit of everything, and he's a great dude. So make sure you're following Cam at HypnicJerkCustoms.com. Next up, we got... Stay Strong Co. The motherfucking homie John. Great dude, always cooking up new projects and is the man behind the only hot sauce enjoyed by both members of the Low Life motherfucking chopper podcast. Give the man a follow, Stay Strong Co. LLC on Instagram. Next up, we got Steel City Blacksmithing, who is pumping out some incredible work on all kinds of projects twisted frame situations, hammers, jockey shifters. All kinds of good stuff. And he's taking custom orders. So if you need something Smithed up, is that how we're going to say that from now on? If you need something Smithed up, hit him up at Steel City Blacksmithing on Instagram. Next, we got No Luck Paintworks. The homie Dan Bliss out there in Manchester, New Hampshire, crushing it with all the finest lines. Make sure you check out No Luck Paintworks and give him a call with the ideas for your next project. And we got a new sponsor, guys, Raise Hell Motorcycle Co. Out of Rochester, New York. This is an up-and-coming chop shop and clothing brand for the heathen in all of us. These guys do bike maintenance, motorcycle sales, used part sales, custom builds, and more. Make sure you're following Raise Hell Motorcycle Co. All one word. You know, I fucking love that. On Instagram for updates and new product drops to see what they are up to. Last but not least, you got your boy, Pharaoh Fabrication. This was a fun episode. Everything I love to talk about. Obviously, you can see this is something I'm super passionate about. If you've got a project that needs either repair or something fabricated, I will take my time to make sure it is done right. I'm into this stuff, and I have been for a long time, and I want to help spread the word, teaching you guys how to do what I'm doing, and then also helping you with stuff that you need a second hand on. Uh, You can follow me on Instagram at Pharaoh Fabrication and also click the link in the bio to check out the Pharaoh Fabrication website with a bunch of past projects. And then last but not least, we've got Loctite's motherfucking Chop Shop, conveniently located at the motherfucking Unicorn Ranch. We're just going to merge them together. Um, He does a little bit of everything over there. He's got the pinstriping going on, the Unicorn Ranch, which is the stickers, hats, vinyl, all the decals, and that good stuff and then the chop shop itself for motorcycle work. So give the man a call, give him a follow, and he will get in touch with you. All right, guys, this has been a fun one, but it's time to close it out. So I will say, if you've been
0: thinking about TIG welding, why are you waiting? Grab that machine and get that full penetration. Yeah, yeah, talking crazy when I'm off that liquor. All black leather, 90 down the highway ripping. Orange top and bottom rocker, that's the click I'm rapping about the sets. Yes, motherfucker, I know I worry ya. SJ Vizal in your area. Fuckin' ain't heard of him like what he want with Younger? I got bars that a bury him. Miss me with your slick talk, threats to too embarrassing. Yeah, so me with it Dead fresh about the saddle Whole team in it In the same clothes Two weeks, I ain't sleeping it Roll through that city Fuck, boy, who want beef with it? Huh? I heard that slick talking Yeah, I know, I know It's cause, cause they chicks saw me at the show The show And when you take drop it, You know, you know How? When you hear that motherfucker go Ooh, you can't stop it once I heat up If you roll up with me Throw that for 3 up Yeah, said if you bottle Let me hear ya Got all them real riders screaming And we ain't got no problem Getting it. Pop in. We got the women on deck and they top list Because they see the flag hanging on my pocket They know it's 4-3 till I die, bitch You know I got what you need, whatever you need it, ho The enemy bit is this shit that gon' make the blow You got my digits, now let me know what you're hittin' for I guarantee, I'ma have you served up Certainly I swerve up, super dirty Wild wall, super clean, whole click patched up Boy, that's a super team, iron head strip club Chopper from the 70s, bottle after bottle Them bitches follow the motto Be twisting throttles and ride it with that 4-3 well, no, hell no, can't afford me Try to imitate that style, you fail horribly That's JVD, I be riding till the wheel break free hey I heard they slick talking, yeah, I know, I know Just cut chicks chick saw me at the show, show And when you take drop in, you know, you know How, when you hear that motherfucker go Oh, you can't stop it once a heat up. If you roll it with me, throw that 4-3 up Yeah, said if you buy it, let me hear you. Got all them real riders screaming And we ain't got no problem getting it popping We got the women on deck and they top list Because they see the flag in my pocket yeah, They know it's 4-3 till I die Bitch One for the man making his never stopping two, 2 2 a lane throttle twistin', pipes popping In that three piece patch I know who go one problem I got four brothers with me Got that four tray on them Like one for the man Making his never stopping two, 2 2 a lane throttle twistin', pipes popping In that three piece patch I know who go one problem I got four brother with me Got that four tray on them Like Making his never stopping Yeah throttle. I'm twisting bright hey, hey I don't know who gon' want problem I got I got got it folk straight call me hold on, spit like a four four These thoughts are all mine these bars are all yours Thought that when I rhyme to holler these women are oh, man I ain't gotta lie to you give it a learning what y'all do I it once want some heat up. If you roll it with me, throw that 4-3 up. Uh, yeah, so if you it, let me hear ya. Got all them real right screaming and we ain't got no problem getting it popping. We got the women on deck and they top list. Because they see the flag hanging on my pocket. They know it's 4-3 till I die, bitch.